This is Sharon from the 2020 Farmers Co-op. You're invited to support and uplift black and brown farmers across the nation. So be sure to catch our live stream this Saturday, February 5th at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. You can do a search on YouTube for On The Wake Up Radio's YouTube channel and Cultivating The Collective. You can also listen in at onthewakeupradio.com. Alrighty, alrighty, making somebody want to go to church in here in the morning because it's been a long time coming. Good morning and welcome to the 2020 Farmers Co-op's first annual Agribusiness Conference. We have assembled a compilation of stimulating and inviting topics we hope you enjoy. Located in the chat is a copy of our agenda for you today to follow along. If you have any questions or comments, please put them in the chat so that we can address them during our Q&A sessions. What we have in store for you today is short but impactful and stimulating information. So you might ask the question this morning, what is the 2020 Farmers Cooperative all about? The mission of the 2020 Farmers Cooperative is simple, agricultural equity for all. There is no secret to the atrocities that have occurred and continue to occur to black and brown and small farmers across the nation. We gather here today to connect, communicate, listen, learn, and reignite the collective by cultivating the mindset of individuals interested in agribusiness. Agribusiness is a $1.3 trillion, that's with a T, not a B, not an M, but agribusiness is a $1.3 trillion industry and there is room at the table. Today, we collectively come together, standing on the shoulders of W.E.B. Dubois, A. Philip Randolph, Nanny Helen Burroughs, Marcus Garvey, Fannie Lou Hamer, and from my very own community leading the cooperative effort, Jacob Riddick, who initiated and formed the Consumers Cooperative Trading Company of Gary, Indiana. Today, we invite you to come grow with us, the 2020 Farmers Cooperative. First up on our agenda is someone we're very proud of. It's our very own board president, Dr. Brenda Waller. Physician by training, farmer by birth, connected through her passion, and engaged because of the struggle. Folks, we open our session up this morning and I bring you our very own board present, Dr. Brenda Waller of the 2020 Farmers Cooperative. Dr. Waller. Good morning and thank you, Sharon. Good morning, Collective. I'm here to share some information with you about farming. Some of it is going to be information that you already know. It's basically going to cover a brief synopsis of what farming has been in America and some of where we are today. So the American history of farming, we know, began with the American Indians. 
and they taught the first colonies to cultivate some simple crops such as corn, beans, and tomatoes. And of course, these Hopi Indians who were the educators of the foreigners that came to their land, um, still farm in the desert today using hand cultivation and a lot of physical work. We know that that's what farming is all about, a lot of physical work. So the Europeans learned the farming and they were assured a good life by doing so. They were able to take care of themselves and also able to send some surplus back to England where there was a lot of famine going on in that country. Commerce at that time was passed on by trade more than cash. I'll trade you a chicken for a side of beef. Thomas Jefferson, who is one of our native presidents here in Virginia, proclaimed that America be free, could be free and independent from England based on maintaining the structure of a family farm. Imagine that, being free and independent on a farm. The family farm could produce everything to be self-sufficient, self-sustaining, thus negating the need for supplement from any other person, government, or foreign company. A large number of Europeans came from famine lands in Europe, displacing the Indians who then themselves fell into disease and famine. Families cleared more and more land, moved west of the mountains, some were prosperous, some were not, and at times there was surplus for sale in town. The towns grew in population based on commerce of agriculture. The people in the town, however, became industrious and learned the business of agriculture with shipping, storing, buying, selling crops and commodities and equipment. As the cities grew, the demand for food grew with the creation of supply and demand. Fortunes were made in storing, shipping, and financing commodities. And of course, these fortunes were not passed down to the farmers who produced what they were selling. And then comes slave labor. We all know the history of slave labor, which allowed the farmers to increase their profit by increasing their yield. So the revolution within starts. Ethics and morality of slavery erupted into the Civil War. And of course, some would tell you that the Civil War was not about slavery, it was about commerce, it was about sovereignty, it was about a lot of things. But those that know their history know that it was about slavery and keeping that commodity under an enslaved condition. The Industrial Revolution allowed for vast expansion in production. Mechanization changed everything. After the Civil War, people moved further west due to destruction of the property on the east. Slaves became free, but without resources or homes in most cases. But some slaves who were free were able to purchase land at that time. Others, of course, fell into what we know as the sharecropper class of farmers. After the war, there was less demand for everything. Prices for the food dropped and the farm economy dropped as well. Therefore, farmers had to organize themselves into unions and cooperatives to pool their influence and their resources. Government provided land grants for agricultural colleges, 
for development in science. And of course, a lot of our HBCUs today were established from those land grants from the government between 1862 and 1962. So the land became abused. It was depleted of nutrients from over-cultivating. And those of you who are living in the West, uh, I'm sure know the story of the Dust Bowl, where the drought came and there was no viable land for a while. The collapse of the stock market came and the Great Depression. So the government paid farmers to leave their land idle and paid them pennies if they paid them anything. So therefore, large conglomerate farms were formulated, leading to the precursor of industrial farms and no longer the family farm. So the problems we have today, some farmers are detached from what they grow. The decisions are not made by the farmers, but by the financiers, the suppliers, and the consultants. Too many genetically modified foods have been produced and too many toxic materials have been utilized in producing those foods. Farmers must own the land, buy the equipment, labor day and night, take all the risks to possibly lose everything in the end. One interesting fact that I learned in preparing this was this depression and suicides are at higher rates than our veterans. And it is reported to be the highest rate of any other profession here in the United States. And this is information from the CDC. Risk of injury, death from accidents, higher incidence of cancer and neurological disease with working with some of these toxic materials are all common knowledge for farmers. So on the national scene, Today, we have 3.4 million farmers. 45,000 of those are black farmers, down from 1 million in 1920. Today's ownership is similar to post-Civil War numbers. Family-owned farms account for 96% of farm ownership. Small farms are on the comeback, and regenerative farming methods hopefully will correct some of the past sins, I guess, against the land. So I'm here in the state of Virginia, Southern Virginia, bordering North Carolina, and agriculture is Virginia's largest private industry. The state reports $70 billion annually from agriculture and 44,800 farms are considered to be small farms. Now, what do we consider to be a small farm? It's not the acreage, it's the amount of money. Small farm is anything that produces $350,000 per year or less in the sales of their product. One other thing that I found interesting here in Virginia is that the typical farmer's age is 60. I'm in that category. 32% are over 65 years of age. I'm in that category. And the average size of the farm is 180 acres. 
less than 16 cents on a dollar of every consumer dollar spent on food actually goes to the farmer. Just think about that, 16 cents on a dollar. Now, I'm a practicing physician, and I always complain about what the insurance companies want to reimburse me. I complain about 60 cents on a dollar, 40 cents on a dollar. So farming obviously has its challenges in getting that reimbursement. So the recurring themes that the Virginia State Small Farm Outreach Program was able to pull out from several focus groups was there are issues in turning small farms into viable businesses. Identifying and accessing farm products are difficult. Improving farmers' business and marketing skills are an issue as well. And I do believe that that program has recently started a eight-week program to help beginning farmers develop their business plan and their marketing skills as well. Accessing land, always an issue. Equipment, bigger issue. Capital and labor, even bigger. Family farms have fallen apart. Farm communities have fallen apart and labor becomes a major issue. Utilizing available government and agency resources, of course, has always been difficult because Hmm. I say the gatekeepers have not changed. There are many programs uh, that are targeted for Black farmers, but when you go to these agencies, they will not give you the same treatment as you they will give your Caucasian brother. So that barrier still exists. Improving broadband and cell services in the rural area is a major, a major concern for us. I still function on satellite at my home or a hotspot, which is fair at best. So when you want to move into some of the technological areas, it becomes difficult because you don't have that service of broadband to support your operation. The next biggest thing we have to do is engage the next generation of farmers. As I mentioned in the other slide, the average age is 60 here in Virginia. So where are the younger people? We need you to step up. So for this year, I selected NIA as my motivator. Nia, of course, is a Swahili word, and it comes from the Kwanzaa principles. And it's to make our collective vocation, the building and development of our community in order to restore our people to their traditional greatness. And I engage all of you on the call today to please take up this purpose for collectively, we are stronger. Everyone has talents, everyone has skills. When we bring them all to the table, we are stronger as a people and as a farming community. So with that, this is my collective effort for my community. These um, represent um, 
private businesses, for-profit businesses, non-profit businesses. And I wouldn't encourage anyone to spread themselves this thin. But for me, it has brought a lot of fulfillment in a lot of different ways. So I encourage you all to participate in your community in whatever form that you can. There's a reason why you're on this call today because you have answered the call that has been placed within you to be a collective and to make your community better. Purpose, people sometimes don't know what their purpose is in life, but as my pastor says, it is whatever your mind can think, whatever your hands can do, and how your feet can carry you to complete those jobs. So thank you for your attention, and I hope that you will enjoy the rest of the conference. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Waller. I, I just love resiliency. And Dr. Brenda has faith like a farmer and very resilient. Technology doesn't always go the way we think it should go, but her faith and her resiliency, we pushed right on through. And there was a bit of information that I thought was very apropos because when we look at black and brown farmers across the nation, there would be lots and lots of black and brown farmers very happy if they were considered a small farm and their revenue was $350,000. Because that is not the case, we have to think very differently about how we bring revenue into our farms. And part of our mission at the 2020 Farmers Cooperative is to help our black and brown and smaller farmers across the nation begin to explore additional revenue generating ideas. And so our next speaker, Dr. Peter May from the University of Maryland uh, is our next speaker. Dr. Peter May received his PhD in environmental science in the Marine Estuarine Environmental Sciences Program and has a BS in natural resources management and aquatic resources from the University of Maryland College Park. He has more than 30 years of experience in the environmental sector working in municipal, state, and federal government agencies, not-for-profits, private counseling, and academic sectors. He has worked for the Smithsonian's Marine Systems Lab, the Interstate Commission on the Potomac River Basin, and the District of Columbia's Government Waste Shed Protection and Water Quality Division, focusing on large river, estuarine, and watershed ecologies. Currently, Peter is an assistant research professor in the Environmental Sciences and Technology Department, a researcher for the ALGA Eco-Technology Center, and a faculty affiliate with the Landscape Architecture Department at the University of Maryland College Park. He has an extensive background in systems ecology, ecological imagery analysis, and environmental accounting. So I take this next presenter very seriously in regards to thinking and cashing in on the green. Things that are in and around our farms in our communities, we may not have necessarily considered them a revenue generator for us in the past, but we bring to you today, Dr. Peter May, to share an opportunity that we hope you will consider embarking upon this growth season. Dr. Peter. 
Thank you very much, Sharon. Uh, I'm uh, very pleased to be here and uh, and I'm looking forward to presenting to you all and hopefully interesting some of you in this new, what we call eco-technologies. I'm uh, um, at Maryland, I'm a part of this Algal Eco-Technology Center, which I'm gonna tell you all about this, this, this interesting technology. That is, uh, I'm probably one of about a dozen people in the country, uh, maybe two dozen in the world that are very familiar with this. And we formed a center for that, which uh, to advance it, which is not uh, to say it can only be done in Maryland because we're an international center. I'm working, I've worked with folks in Egypt, as far away as Egypt and, uh, and uh, Rio de Janeiro and, um, and all over in Mexico. And, uh, and so I'm hoping that some of you, as I present this technology, will reach out to me and may be interested in in, in putting together a, a a grant that we're looking for to try this technology out on some of um, on some of your farms, if it makes sense. So, um, yes. Yeah, so the uh, University of Maryland Agroleco Technology Center. Again, I just related to it, it to you. Uh, there's the website, and I'll. Uh, my email is at the bottom of the screen there, and please feel free to contact me and put a put a black farmers or 2020 co-op or or uh, or algae in the subject line, and I'll be sure to uh, to see it. Let's see. Uh, so circular economies uh, are uh, farm economies are are very important uh, to understand. I, many of you may have heard of them, but. Um, but just this week, actually, the USDA came out with another statement, a full-throated statement in support of, of circular farm economies. Uh, and what is that? That's using the inputs that you have, the, uh, the nutrients, fertilizers, the carbon, the energy, uh, water uh, quality, soil health and improvement, green jobs. These are all things that you uh, you you either you pay for uh, and are a big cost, but what you want to do is think about how can you reinvest those outputs back into your farm to reduce costs and re and improve output. Uh, I like to call it acting like an ecosystem, and um, because ecosystems recycle all their waste materials, right? They re everything gets used in an ecosystem, right? Some something uses it, and so farms are like that traditionally, but I think over the years as we've grown more into the harder technologies and we've moved away from that. And so I think uh, it's very important to understand that we want to reinvest some of those waste products uh, that might be bad water quality, manure, um, uh, sediment runoff, and put them back in. And algal turf scrubbers can be a tool for doing that. At least in Chesapeake Bay, it's one of the largest uh, watersheds in the country, and I know many of your uh, co-op farmers are outside of Chesapeake Bay watershed, but this can be looked at nationwide. Um, and and the EPA uh, uh, recently approved this technology, uh, and what it does is it uh, allows for the opportunity to actually potentially make money in nutrient and water quality improvement credit trading uh, through EPA, through your states, through your counties, to get actual money for that. There's money available for that in some circumstances. Carbon sequestration should be at the top of everybody's mind. Farms are carbon managers and producers. And how can we uh, calculate that? I'm, a, I'm an environmental accountant. I, I'm, I've spent a lot of time in carbon calculations. And so how can you calculate what your carbon uptake and sequestration rate is on your farm and how can you uh, benefit from that, from that financially? 
you know, energy production. Uh, this is something else that we uh, can be involved in with algae scrubbers, organic soil inputs, and even a high protein animal feed. You know, anytime you can save money by using a resource you're producing on your own and not paying for it, that's a good thing, right? So uh, here is a, 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 a an image of a of a farm out in Bridgetown on the Eastern shore where, you know, most farms don't have electrical outlets in the middle of their fields, right? And so, or want to run extension cords. So uh, this, this uh, project ran six of these flowways. Essentially they're pumping water from a farm ditch and uh, into a, 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 a pulsing mechanism at the top that flows this down a very gradual slope into uh and so this is from a farm ditch water that's just water that's going out to your local river or, or watershed and um and it's capturing it and putting it back onto these flow beds and this as i as you can see has a uh, solar power on it to pump to run these pumps and you essentially become an algae farmer and um and then that is a method by which you can capture nutrients carbon and sediment and figure out what you want to do with it um, I studied, uh, you know, in the marine uh, estuarine environmental science, I, I worked with Dr. Walter Aidey here is one of my mentors at the Smithsonian Institution, and he's the one who came up with this ingenious secret technology back in the uh, late 70s, early 80s. He has a few patents with them, but um, I'm uh, in a unique position to work with anybody that's interested in this, and he's uh, you know, I have his blessing from research purposes for to, through through commercialization to work with anyone interested in this to apply this technology, and I'm going to discuss it a little more here. Uh, so what you're doing essentially is pumping water from a, 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 a lake, a pond, a river uh, on your farm, and you're pumping it into a surging mechanism down a, a maybe a half to one percent slope or using gravity and then discharges the water back into the uh, water body. And what you're doing is creating a controlled algal growth on a screen. Here you can see an image of a screen with the algae community that forms on that screen. Uh, whenever you can take distilled water and put it in a pan out in the sun in the summer and eventually al algae will grow in it. So algae is very resilient. Uh, Mother nature decides what kind of algae is in that uh, water and it will attach to that screen and form an algae community. And here, you know, depending on the season and your water source, algae will look different, different types of algae. And that's growing on that screen very fast. It's got the highest growth rate of any, uh, any living organism on the planet, actually. And because it grows so fast, it's doing a lot of work. When algae grows, photosynthesis, we all know, drives uh, drives farms, right? Photosynthesis drives your farms. We're benefiting from the sunlight uh, and and what we have seeds in the in the ground and the soil uh, uh, to to produce our food or our, our agricultural products. This is just a different kind of farming I want to introduce to you, um, and uh, and using algae to do the work for you. Uh, that's what we're we're trying to do, because when that algae grows, it grows very fast. Uh, when the water flows by it, the algae is uptaking that carbon, pulling carbon out of the water. It's pulling the nitrogen and phosphorus out of the water very efficiently. You can't make a filter. You can, but it would be very expensive to operate. The algae is the best filter, and it traps a lot of sediment in that. Al algal turf, we call it. That's why we call them algal turf scrubbers. 
uh, because the uh, algal turf is scrubbing the water, the nutrients and the carbon and the sediment out of that water. Um, the, the, the pioneer of ecological engineering, H.T. Odom, uh, who taught out of University of Florida in Gainesville, uh, he's one of my mentors and he called this ecological jujitsu, using, uh, using nature, which is ecological engineering, the functions of nature and understanding them for the benefit of human society and nature both. That's the definition of ecological engineering. And this is an eco-technology that does that very well. Uh, many years ago, uh, now it seems like, but in 2009, after President Obama was elected, he, he uh, issued a, uh, uh, an executive order that uh, included algal turf scrubbers as an emerging eco-technology that should be used for Chesapeake Bay cleanup. And so here you can see on the left around the Chesapeake Bay watershed, these are projects we've had in every different kind of location, salinity, water uh, use type from dairy manure, washdown water, to uh, urban waters, to, um, to different salinities, uh, fresh water, hydroelectric dams. We've, used, we've employed this technology in many different circumstances. And we've actually done it at different scales and have produced biofuels out of it. And, and uh, so, you know, can we clean water to help a watershed like Chesapeake Bay? Could be the Mississippi River, the Missouri River, the Ohio River, Yakagini, any of these systems that have almost all of them have water quality issues, right? And so uh, using this technology, this eco-technology to uh, extract these nutrients and sediment and carbon out of the water, if you can get paid and get benefit for that, which you can in some circumstances, uh, you can get paid to be algae farming, just like soybeans or corn, but the productivity rate is, is many orders higher than corn or soybeans in, in that respect. And then what you do with that algae um, is something we'll talk about here shortly. But in Chesapeake Bay, the EPA actually approved this as a, a best management practice for water quality improvement. And they promulgated these um, uh, uh, regulations that all the, the states are, uh, are free to uh, adopt these regulations and working with the Port of Baltimore on a project you see here in this image on the front of the report, which can be found online and I can get it to you if you're interested. But uh, uh, this allowed that little two meter wide system, six foot wide by, um, by 100 foot long, say, uh, 150 feet, that system mitigated a 1200 acre parking lot to the tune of eight, of nine acres of impervious surface so this helps it's very powerful in terms of water quality improvement and so the feds have recognized this and we can use that not just in chesapeake bay but any other watershed uh, as a as a tool for understanding and gaining some benefit to your farm uh, this this particular flowway was a pilot but it was very powerful produced a lot of algae um, and it basically is just a, uh, a impermeable rubber membrane over a slightly sl inclined slope that you pump water into and let it flow down and then back into the waterway again. So it's very simple, but there's a lot of um, subtleties to, to how to employ it. But it's some, not anything that any farmer couldn't understand or operate or even build. Um, we've done these at very large scales, multiple acres where you're really getting into, this is essentially a farm field, right? You know, two, three, four acres, a small farm field, but it um, has been done at that scale for what large scale water quality improvement. And you can, at small scales, it, you know, it probably takes, you know, less than 
you know, half an hour or so to, to do this by hand, to scrape it, uh, the algae off, which you do every week in order to harvest that algae. But you can, at larger scales, you can use a small tractor or a John Deere with a rubber blade, essentially, to make it much faster. And you do this, uh, essentially, these graphs here to show that this is where you want to uh, harvest that algae at the, at the peak of the growth curve, right? Because it starts leveling up. You want to maximize how much algae you're producing uh, with that polluted water from the river or lake. And uh, because that's how you get more algae when you harvested it every week, you are uh, stimulating it to go into a, a, a very rapid growth phase uh, over the next week. And so you're maximizing how much algae you're producing and harvesting. Why do you want to do that? Because when you do this at any scale, you're producing a lot of algae. And, um, and we've done many things with it. Uh, and uh, one of the most efficient, and I think farmers would be really, uh, I see this technology as something that farmers should and could most readily adopt, is that you can turn it into a soil amendment. You can, you can compost it. You can turn it into, plow it in as green fertilizer. It has known rate uh, uh, concentrations of nitrogen and phosphorus and carbon, and it traps a lot of uh, sediment as well. So, you know, putting this back into your soil is essentially trapping what ran off of your farms into your farm pond or the or the river that crosses by your farm and putting that those those nutrients carbon and sediment back into your farmlands and so that's part of this circuit understanding of a circular economy we've turned it into biofuels i'm actually sitting here at my desk with a half a liter of biobutanol that was made this is actually new york city wastewater treatment uh uh, uh source we put an algae a scrubber on the rockaway wastewater treatment plant and we took that algae and we turned it into ethanol and then we fermented it again and turned it into butanol which you can pour this in any gas tank it's a one-to-one -one for gasoline and so this is essentially algae that was grown uh, on wastewater from rockaway wastewater treatment plant and so biofuel is something we can do. You need a lot of algae to make it make sense. And so maybe there'd be a, and that's why I love the cooperative here. Uh, I'm a, myself a member of at least a half a dozen cooperatives. My housing uh, community in Greenbelt is a, is a cooperative. My bank's a cooperative. My cafe is a cooperative. My grocery store is a cooperative. My newspaper is a cooperative. These were all started in the 1930s during the New Deal, right? When cooperatives were seen as a, a, an alternate avenue in, in capitalism to, to have more community investment and involvement and direction. And so I believe in that. And maybe, and I see the, the farmers cooperatives uh, as an opportunity to maybe create a uh, if we found, a, a, if it made sense, a collection of farms in a particular area that are all growing algae and turning this into high value uh, products because of your massive algae you're producing collectively. So biofuel could be one of these. Omega-3s, uh, you know, you don't have to harvest the fish, the Menhaden from Chesapeake Bay to get omega-3s like Omega-3 Corporation. The fish get it from the algae they're eating. So you can bypass that and and uh, that's another uh, industrial process you need a lot of algae to do it uh, you know as many people know there's a lot of money to be had in in um, 
in uh, vitamins and, and whatnot. And so this is another outlet. But I think for farmers, the easiest would be composting and an organic fertilizer or, or livestock feed. The algae is very high in protein. I actually worked with an algae scrubber on a farm that was growing tilapia and we used uh, uh, algae uh, to clean the, the tilapia water. And the algae, what did we do with it? We just threw it in the chicken coops and the chickens ate it up quick. Uh, you know, so that's free food for them. A byproduct of that is the eggs were greenish. Uh, so, you know, you have to have an outlet for that understanding that there's very high in omega-3s because folks uh, may or may not be interested in eating green eggs, um, but it's a high protein source. What we did with the uh, port project, Port of Baltimore, was we took that algae and put it in and farmers, should, uh, many farmers are aware of, if they don't operate one themselves, anaerobic digestion on farms if they produce a lot of manure. Uh, to, to reduce that manure load. Uh, well, this uh, anaerobic digestion, we took the algae from the flowway and fed it into an anaerobic digester and turned it into methane gas that then we ran through a microbial fuel cell that created electricity. So, you know, we can be doing that on farms too, creating a circular energy economy on farms. So you can get your nutrients out of it, your carbon, you can uh, compost it, but you can also turn it into energy on a farm, whether it's by methane and anaerobic digestion, or if it's by fermentation at large scales to make sense, you know, if that makes sense. Uh, algae, when it photosynthesizes, produces oxygen. This is Baltimore Harbor, a project I did for a foundation uh, that's interested. And there's a lot of money out there in foundations for good ideas. So I'm excited to work with you at identifying some of these um, funding sources. I wouldn't expect any farmer to want to do this and pay for it themselves. Uh, at least initially, we're going to be doing trying to do this with multiple farmers and trying this at a very large scale. But when you produce this algae, uh, a certain amount, the algae produces oxygen during daylight, during photosynthesis. So when it discharges, it creates what would have been a, a low dissolved oxygen in Baltimore Harbor, it pushes an oxygen bubble into that. So if you're interested in that for your farm pond or lake or your local river, that's a benefit that you can add to, uh, to, to, to that isn't given a value, unfortunately, but we know more oxygen and water is better, right? And so when we talk about these, uh, these technologies, um, I'm a scientist, and so we love data, we love collecting data. And, and so we've done this at multiple different locations on uh, the Susquehanna River in Lancaster um, with in Beltsville Ag Research Center. Uh, uh, we, we worked, which is in my backyard, uh, with dairy manure affluent. Uh, we ran that through an algae scrubber, agricultural drainage ditches, different uh, salinities. Algae grows anywhere and off of anything if there's nutrients and carbon, right? So uh, the lower boundary of, say, you have an acre of algae uh, scrubbing going on, that's the lower and upper boundaries for what we've seen running at these scrubbers for a year. The lower boundary is actually very high for most best management practices. The higher boundary is off the charts. And so when you get these kinds of, and that depends on the season, how much you know sun, how much rain you might have had, um, but you can get a lot of algae production uh, from an acre of, of al algae scrubbers. And what do you do with that algae? That's, that's up to you. I've had students run these things on Anacostia River and in uh, Maryland and DC and collect data. Uh, they built their own little algae scrubbers. Uh, you know, it's fun. It's, it's, I love stimulating the students and they're excited. They want to see these things built at large scales. 
um, they get really jazzed by these eco-technologies and how to employ them. And so I, through the Algalica Technology Center and University of Maryland would welcome working with any of you all and can actually have some students devoted towards this because they get a lot out of it in terms of their education, but then whoever we're working with can get a lot out of it too in terms of application. And they went and did this in DC and Maryland on the Anacostia and found these are some of the rates, the amount of carbon at pounds per acre per year, about 1100 pounds of nitrogen per acre per year. This is, these are real numbers. Total phosphorus, you know, 140 pounds of phosphorus. That's a lot. You can, uh, they're giving in tr nutrient trading credits up to $400 a pound for phosphorus load reduction, which is very hard to do. Um, and the carbon, of course, you're, you're trapping that carbon and the sediments that are coming out of it. And uh, they, they, uh, they, they focused on, a, uh, I'll just, this was part of their presentation, a, a park in, in the Anacostia River, a nice big flat area near a body of water. And they came up with a student design layout. They need to learn things like uh, computer assisted design, CAD, and, and how to do these things. And so I decided to help try to plug them in into projects like this one, where they did all the work. They did a 30% design for their senior project, which is probably where I used to work in consulting. That would have probably cost, you know, $150,000 for, for a similar effort on the part of a, a private for profit consulting firm. But here I can direct students into this, which is really great. And here's some of the rates. Uh, in Chesapeake Bay, harvest uh, a best management practice is 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 uh, is is defined by how many impervious equivalent impervious acres. So if you have a parking lot that's an acre and you have a forest that's one acre, uh, the amount of runoff that comes off of that parking lot can be equated to how many uh, forests equivalents and vice versa. So the algae scrubber, one acre of that behaves and mitigates for over a hundred acres of parking lot, believe it or not, or rooftop. One to 100 is a great ratio, and that's for nitrogen. For phosphorus, it was 60 acres, and, and suspended sediment, it was less, three and a half acres. But that's three and a half tons of sediment that one acre of, of ATS is removing. And if you're a farmer, you can put that into back plant, literally plow it back into your farm, right? And so the goals of these things often are things like removal of sediments, carbon uptake, improved dissolved oxygen. And my students have these nice 3D graphics that they created to show. And, but these, a farm-based ETS, you know, can either be a smaller scale, and these are divided up into different, six different flowways, because as scientists, we like to replicate, and then we can uh, run statistics on the biomass. Uh, so that's why we have this divided up. This would take about one hour for one person to do all of this, um, maybe less to harvest this with a single push broom, pushing that algae down. Um, that's really only about 150 feet, right? And, um, and so, uh, but at a larger scale, you just put a rubber blade on your, uh, on your John Deere and go to it. And it takes, you know, far less to do an acre. As you know, uh, a tractor can do a lot more than uh, a team of horses or, or uh, steers to pull a plow, correct? And so, you know, this is something that I'm hoping to get some of you interested in. And I know the, the Farmers Cooperative, this is great because, 
if you know working with you all i can reach a lot more people to find interest for large grants i'm talking multi-million dollar grants that i would love to work with you all on on with particular farmers uh, where it makes sense for you and it, you you know and you're interested to employ this to start working on a practical application for for how to use this technology and feed and create a circular farm economy with nutrients sediment improved soil health energy food all of that and uh, and so I look forward to speaking with you my uh, colleague Patrick Kangas here he uh, um, he he just retired actually from University of Maryland and I'm I've been working with him for over 30 years and uh, and now I'm taking over the algal eco technology center and so I want to form these relationships with folks because you guys have the ability to spread this information around no farm is an island right but um, Cooperatives like this, I strongly believe in, and and I think that's the way to get to the next, the, the future farms, that this can be a tool and a component to work with uh, to help you improve economy, but also benefit water quality, benefit your water resources, but also above all benefit your farms and your, your personal farm economy to keep you all going. And this would be a first, nobody else in the country is doing this or pushing it. You all would be the first to be taking this on in any kind of coordinated way. And so I'm excited to try to make that happen and make a big splash with it. Um, with and, and let's go out and get some big grant money and do this uh, in the coming years. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Peter. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This is truly a strategy of cashing in on the green. And when we heard about this and actually the co-op, we were exploring carbon credits um, as a way to to encourage our farmers this growth season uh, to capitalize on it. And then my introduction to Dr. Peter, I should say the cooperative's introduction into Dr. Peter just opened up a well of conversations because as he mentioned, uh, this algae scrubbing actually um, can qualify for some carbon offsets. So um, members of the co-op will be hearing a lot about this and it even multiplies itself when we're working together as a co-op, uh, as a collective entity. And so when I think of three to $400 a pound and you're harvesting every week on a small, small scale, it adds up. But when you're harvesting as a collective, if you've got a, a pond or a little stream running through yours, or you have a, a, a waste uh, type of, um, ditch on your farm. These are all things that we're going to begin to educate our farmer members on and we're going to engage in the practice um, because it's an additional revenue stream that we want you to incorporate uh, if it makes sense on your farm as a collective. And so that just leads me and I, I want to also mention uh, a lot of you all know we have been reaching out to our HBCUs and our land-grant universities um, as partners. University of Maryland, we also have a partnership agreement on the table that uh, in time it will be coming uh, to solidify. But I think between our partners that we have uh, up in our south, the upper region of our southeast region, we have some really exciting programs that we want to bring to you. And our next presenter is really going to share some things if you are in the urban environment. Um, and this is a pretty large encatchment area if you're in the DVM area 
at all. And so I want to bring up our next uh, presenter who I just spent a week in DC working on some things and bringing some things to light for the members of, of the co-op. But uh, M. Che Zaji, uh, we call him Che, Axum, is actually the director of the Center for Urban Agriculture and Gardening Education at the University of the District of Columbia, our new HBCU partner for that area. And he leads a team of researchers at UDC's Firebird Research Farm, located in Beltsville, Maryland. As you can see, the Beltsville and a collaboration with the University of Maryland, uh, we're putting these strategic plans together to make our farmers very viable competitors in the agricultural industry here. So in his job or in his role there, he oversees UDC's Master Gardening, Sustainable Urban Agriculture and Specialty and Ethnic Crops programs. Mr. Axum worked for the USDA, Agricultural Research Service, Plant Sciences Institute for over 20 years. He taught middle school and is a successful farmer and sustainable farming consultant. He is a graduate of the College of Agriculture and Natural Resources from the University of Maryland. He also is a certified nutrient management, so I know that algae just peaked his ears up, consultant for the state of Maryland. Uh, we call him Che, is a member of the American Society of Agronomy, ASA, the Crop Sciences Society of America, and the Soil Science Society of America. Ladies and gentlemen, I bring to you Che Axum from the University District of Columbia. Well, good morning, good morning. I am so happy to be here. Um, and I'm so happy to have been connected with the 2020 Farmers Cooperative. Um, when they called me, uh, it came really through the president of the university's office and it came through his office and it kind of trickled down to me and they asked us, you know, were we interested? I said immediately, you know, yes, yes, yes. Let's meet with these folks and see how we can partner, see what we can do. And um, uh, so far, it's been a great kind of opportunity. So um, it's, it's what it's all about, just some connections, connections and giving back to the community. So a um, quick little history about me as a farmer. Um, I wish that I could sit before you this morning and say I'm a fifth, sixth or seventh generation farmer, but I can't even do that. Uh, my farming comes by way of pharmacy. I was very interested in pharmacy and had headed toward pharmacy school almost ready to knock on the door and sit down and take a seat there. But I worked in pharmacies and I, um, something about it. I just, it just, it started not to really catch my interest too much. But then I was in Beltsville one day driving past, you know, driving past um, USDA and I said, hmm, agriculture. I know nothing about agriculture. Well, let me go up there and see if they have jobs because I'm taking too much science to really kind of let this go the way. So boom, I went there, started working there, went back to University of Maryland got my uh, degree in agronomy and uh, actually uh, started farming. And so I'm um, working at the USDA for 20 years in the um, small fruit laboratory, doing a lot of research with uh, small fruits and um, farming at the same time. So um, yeah, so uh, I guess my lecture really is, could be more geared more toward people who are probably just thinking about, you know, are very interested in farming. Like, how can I really, what do I do if I don't have a lot of land I live in the city somewhere. What should I should I venture into this? And I would say, you know, yes, 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 because um, 
I'm going to go through a little history of my farming careers, what I did and how I really started. But, um, you know, so uh, let's uh, take this journey. So uh, agriculture is at the crossroads. I mean, there's uh, so much going on now with agriculture. There's, um, you know, I, you know, again, my agronomy degree and I was, you know, at the University of Maryland, I was very interested in um, organic agriculture while I was there, but um, only a few courses really touched upon that. You know, I have my sole professor who I still stay in contact with now, Dr. Ray Wild was a good guy. He was um, the, the head soil professor there. So we, we talked a lot and um, he got me more interested in, you know, organic agriculture and farming, things like that. But agriculture is at a crossroads. Um, I could tell you now that, uh, you know, um, organic farming, you know, there's conventional farming, where a lot of farmers farm conventionally and all these things are doing good to feed the, uh, feed the planet. And all of them are necessary. So it's not, it's never been, a, you know, sometimes people try to make it as a competition between rural and urban or peri-urban, which is right in between rural and urban. But there's no competition. It's just one thing. It's about mission, our mission to really help feed the planet and also sustain the health of the planet at the same time. So those two things have to coincide with each other. So you talk about organic agriculture and sustainable agriculture. They are related, but many times they are different. They're different concepts. You have a lot of farms who are very good uh, organic farmers, but they might not be that sustainable. You have some sustainable farms who farm sustainably and um, they're not organic, but, um, you know, so you have a lot of these things. So we're, we're getting to learn, you know, I guess there's, you know, something to be learned from each of these uh, disciplines, but really trying to find out, you know, where you would fit in, and especially in an urban setting is, um, you know, it's a little bit easier to go organic or be a sustainable farmer than it is probably sometimes on a large scale. So this is might not be that much of a challenge for urban farmers, but uh, something that you really need to look at. So we know about conventional agriculture. Everybody knows about conventional agriculture and what it's done to the planet, what it's continually doing to the planet. Um, you know, so we know that some of these things, you know, need to be changed. And uh, I guess we're looking more and more as the world is going in certain directions, we're looking at more ways to really kind of address some of these changes and see if we can kind of help people and have a healthier planet. So there's a lot into sustainable agriculture, you know, um, uh, that first one up there, economics and you know, community vitality, conservation, nutrient management, all these things are very important. Uh, that last bullet, uh, whole farms systems approach in agroecology, um, we're hosting a um, the 20, I don't know many have ever heard of the, the food tank. So the food tank, tank for 2022 will be held this year at UDC. And the theme is uh, something that's very close to me now. It's been close to me for a while now. It's agroecology. So um, I hope to really kind of embrace that and get folks to really understand more about agroecology and also more importantly, urban agroecology, how it can really help in feeding the planet and things like that. So um, why become a farmer? Well, I mean, I, you know, originally when I really started on this journey, I was very, before I even knew what the term agronomy was, it was just something that piqued my interest. And then after I found out more about it and went back to the University of Maryland, I said, wow, this is really some cool thing. It's, it's, it's a high level responsibility because feeding people is a, it, it's a gift to be able to do it, to be able to even be involved in something of that. But uh, right now, I mean, we have about 7 billion reasons to feed people. We have uh, 7 billion people on the planet. Uh, by 20, 
50, another nine billion more. Right now, you know, we grow enough food to feed everybody, but when that 2050 comes, if that extra 2 billion people come, then the equation changes. So food is the, is the new oil. Uh, uh, seeds are the new oil. Seeds are gold and seeds are so valuable. It's even hard to get certain seeds now because everybody is farming now. So um, that's a thing that we really need to look at. Climate change, climate change. I worked with uh, a grant with Tuskegee University about two years ago, and we looked at some crops, which I call climate smart crops, which crops which um, grow under extreme temperatures. So we have a whole list of those that we've dealt with and growing those in hoop houses in urban areas. And um, we found that there are quite a few that, even though the temperature does go up and gets quite hot in these hoop houses and also the outside environment, there are a lot of crops that people can use to feed themselves. So uh, this is a, you know, a book that's available. Sharon, um, when she was here last week, we had a few extra copies, but I would definitely uh, ask anybody to, um, if you're interested in, interested in farming, whether it's urban, peri-urban or rural or whatever, this is a good book to have because it kind of tells you that, um, you know, it's uh, farmers, some farmers, people, farmers are very good. Farmers, farmers are very good, but sometimes they are not as good business people as they are farmers. So this white you know, starting out in this direction will kind of help you with that in that area. Okay. Um, one of the things that we're looking at our farm is going in the, 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 the direction of um, organic certification for a reason that we've been asked to do this by the university because uh, we've just signed an MOU with a, a, a major organic kind of grocery store, which they're going to put one of these grocery stores on campus, and they want us to eventually try to sell some of the food we grow on the farm, which we don't sell food on the farm now. We all the farm in the UDC research farm. We grow and really give to the community, 8,000, 9,000 pounds last year. And so that is um, what we do. So organic certification is a thing that you might want to look at for marketing purposes and also just to get you, help you become a better farmer. Resources. Um, one of the books I, I really got interested in early on was this book to the, uh, this book called How to Make a $100,000 Farm in 25 Acres. It might be out of print. I, I'm lucky to have a hardback copy. But uh, the guy on the... Uh, on the left of the picture is Booker T. Watley. He's the guy who grew, who, who wrote the book. And interestingly enough, the guy on the right-hand side was the guy who starts Domino Pizzas. And he realized early on that he couldn't keep buying tomatoes and things like that from wholesalers because he had to find a cheaper way to do it. So he reached out to this gentleman and he had farmers growing crops for Domino's early on. All some of the green peppers, the tomatoes, and all these things were grown by farmers in local areas. I don't know if they're still doing that, but this is kind of how Domino's get started in the early uh, in, of the program. I started farming on a very small scale, just selling. I just, not even an acre here. It was a 16th of an acre, which I had at least out. And I just sold. And basically, I sold to restaurants specifically. I had a small CSA, which is a community-supported agriculture at one time, which we had about 10 to 12. When I first started off, 10 to 12 people. But I got this land certified, and I basically just started uh, selling the restaurants. I had a friend of mine, a buddy of mine who was a chef, and we got together, collaborated, grew the food, sold to restaurants, and uh, it, it went very well. One of my first chefs that I sold to was the the great Patrick Clark. He's no longer with us, but he uh, was a the President Clinton's favorite chef at the Hotel Hey Adams. So we just knocked on his door one day with our beautiful produce, and he was like, wow, you guys, we, I can't even buy what you're bringing me. I can't even buy through the wholesalers. And he started buying all that we had. Later on, he went up to uh, New York, to that Tribeca area in New York, and started several restaurants up there. But he was a great guy and one of my first clients. 
Uh, yeah, that's me growing uh, early on. Grew a lot of herbs, culinary herbs, and selling in restaurants. And you can see, you know, there's not there's not 20 acres there. There's just a small plot, and we just had a good marketing thing. We knocked on doors of restaurants and chefs, and just said, "Hey, this is what we got." And we had a better product than what they could get. Uh, grew a lot of baby vegetables, ethnic crops. Um, I specialized in nutrient dense crops. I didn't have a way to add value to my crops. So a lot of times when I went and worked at farmers markets, I picked special special varieties of vegetables which had a purported higher nutrient density than regular. Like for example, uh, you got a better boy tomato. What I would grow was a tomato called caro rich, which would say a tomato which had a higher beta carotene content than the um, Better boy, so I would sell those to folks, and that's how I would kind of market a lot of my produce at the time. Uh, we grew a lot of flowers. I was so surprised that people would pay. They people would argue sometimes about the price of a tomato, but when you show them a bunch of flowers for a price, they if the flowers were beautiful, <laughs> they, they just bought them. So we grew a lot of flowers. Grew a lot of cut flowers. Another thing to increase your profit on an urban farm, you should always grow flowers. Uh, second farm was uh, in um, Jessup, Maryland. It was a little bit larger, uh, doing a lot of kind of sustainable things, tractor growing on small. That's about a about two, two, three acre plot there. Uh, grow a lot of broccoli in between the rows. We grow living row covers, which attracted beneficial insects, kept the mud off our feet and when we harvested. And uh, it was a, a beautiful operation, a lot of good food. That's when we had a CSA and we had the people buying shares and we would they would get a bag of vegetables each week from that farm uh always growing year round we do we have one greenhouse we have a few greenhouses at the farm in Bellsville now but this is one of my first forays into growing food year round i'm a firm believer that if you can grow food without using fossil fuels this is the way the planet should go uh we grew food in these greenhouses uh we grew in these greenhouses 365 days of the year and um never using fossil fuels uh, we used a little electricity which was created by a solar panel and the solar panel powered our blower which inflated between the two layers of plastic poly on the greenhouse and that's inside and um, most of pretty much all of that went to uh, restaurants and i think we had maybe a hotel we sold to but all that went to restaurants so and that is in the data winter that is in probably i guess january february the data winner that's how the greenhouse looked and um, uh it went well we had good response from selling our crops to restaurants okay another uh picture of a winter food production uh growing outside with high tunnels this is available if you don't have a hoop house or don't feel like growing a hoop house you can grow these same crops outside protected especially during the winter months with using hoops and this uh remake cloth and just the, the bag the yellow bags on the side that just have sand in them weighs the cloth down so when the frost or snow gets on it, it doesn't cave the cloths in and um the key to growing a winter a good winter crop a fall crop your fall garden starts in august it does not start in september or october it has to start in august you need 90 percent of growth on that plant to get it to overwinter outside successfully uh, these are some uh, pods, solar pods, which we grew, and we put these in people's backyards. We would uh, fix this up for them, put the soil in them, plant it for them. Sometimes we get a contract to come back and change the plants in and out so people could grow food uh, year-round. The top of that pod would come off in the summertime. It'd be just a raised bed box, but in the wintertime, you put that pod back on, and you could eat out of that uh, pod uh, in 
December, January, February, March. Uh, this is one we put up on the University of Maryland group. Uh, we had uh, contacted them uh, at one time, and I don't know if they still have it up there, but uh, this was on Ellicott City Dining Hall, University of Maryland. So we uh, built one up on the roof, and um, I think the students were were using it quite quite a while after we had built it up there to uh, produce food year-round, and that is at the University of Maryland College Park. Growing microgreens was a huge, huge, huge success early on. Um, growing microgreens in gutters, compost, and um, it was such a big hit. It was just people raved because the microgreens that we sold them lasted for, you know, maybe a week, week and a half. The stuff they would try to buy from wholesalers lasts a couple of days and they'd have to throw it away. And we had better varieties and we let chefs pick out what they wanted us to grow. And we grow it, package in a clamshell, one pound clamshell, 15, 20, 15 to $20. Take a clamshell to them, drop it off. Boom. Easy peasy. So uh, one of the things, uh, you know, I, I feel very fortunate when I first started farming, you know, I, I you know, I, I didn't know any black farmers. Uh, maybe one, two, maybe in this area, in the, in the metropolitan region who were kind of doing what I was doing. There probably was a few more, but I didn't know them. But I had a person who I could say, huh, okay, I, I, I get it now. I get it. I get what he's doing. I get where he was going. I understand him, what he was trying to do. And so that's what it was for me. That was my inspiration. That's totally been my ins inspiration always. This uh, The avatar of Alabama, George Washington Carver. Tremendous multi-genius. The father of the Green Revolution, which starts in the 40s, him and Henry Ford. Yeah, it's an excellent book um, that I would is, is a look at global sustainability as seen through the eyes of George Washington Carver. Excellent book. So it talks about the technology, the green technology, like Dr. Peter May was talking about the green technology. One of the things Carver was interested in, he said, nature does not produce waste. And so nothing in nature is waste. So we just have to, we just have to find these uses for it. And so that's what he was doing. And when he collaborated with Henry Ford, that's what they were doing, trying to use as many farm products to create industrial uses. So today we call it biotechnology, but back then they called it chemistry. George Washington Carver is the father of chemistry, C-H-E-M-E-R-G-Y. That is the biotechnology that's using, taking an agricultural waste product and giving it industrial usage. But that's that's it. So I mean, I would encourage anybody. You know, if you if you're really looking now, is the time. There's never been another time to really be engaged in farming. You know, because I tell people all the time, what you can grow on your own, you cannot even buy in the store. So why not grow your own? Grow it for your friends. Grow it for your families. Find some markets for it. Grow it for selling, and at the same time. Be kind to the environment when you're growing it, and you know you can't really go wrong. So yeah, I would always choose this direction to go to in this career for me, or advise younger folks to just do it and give it a try. At least give it a try. So thank you very much for everything. All right, thank you, Che. And I tell you, um, our relationship with the 2020 Farmers has been very fruitful over the last year. And we have some excellent programs that um, we want individuals who, who are in an inner city urban area uh, to embark upon. And even if you don't have land, there is an opportunity for you to come and learn how to be a farmer engage in the process and get some good information at our UDC 
uh, Beltsville Farm um, and members of the co-op, you'll be hearing a lot about that. And um, we're, we're just ready to get started. Uh, as Che mentioned, they have signed an MOU with a large organic uh, grocery store. And we need individuals who are going to uh, be growing organically, but most important, usually utilizing good, uh, acceptable farming practices because uh, we have to be able to meet demand. And we all know the story about meeting demand when it comes to black and brown farmers. We don't have enough scale, but collectively we can embark upon very lucrative contracts and very lucrative negotiations by coming together and having a strategic grow plan. And so <clears throat> in order to help facilitate the onset of our growing, our next speaker, very excited to have them on board as a, a partner. And this is the University uh, of Texas Southern. Uh, we are reaching out to our HBCU partners and they are extending opportunities for our farmers to be able to scale, have access to the resources and, and research that's necessary to help individuals scale. And what I wanna say about this, it's more than just farming as we know. It's like the algal scrubbing. Black and brown farmers, small scale farmers, we have to begin to understand how do we make our farm become an agribusiness? something that will allow us to generate a revenue, but also leave legacies for those to come behind. But our next speaker, uh, who is actually, uh, I, I think I'm gonna give her a promotion on the title here and call <laughs> her uh, the Dean of, of uh, Science and Chemistry at Texas Southern University. Um, but we're working on some great things when it comes to soil management and what we can can be doing. So our next speaker is Dr. Sonia Good of Texas Southern University. Dr. Sonia. Good morning, everyone. Um, I'm happy to be here. So first and foremost, uh, <laughs> she'd like to call me the Dean. So let's not jump too ahead of things. Um, I'm actually the chair of the chemistry department at Texas Southern University. And um, at Texas Southern University, uh, within our College of Science, Engineering, and Technology, we are known for um, our environmental toxicology program. But what one of the things that we're doing with the Co-op 2020, we're partnering with the farmers in this group, where we want to be able to support them through analysis. So, um, in this topic here. It's called what's in our soil. So this is one of the things that we do. We investigate soil, air, and water as well. But in this topic, we're gonna to talk about what's in our soil. So really I'm just gonna, you know, just briefly just mention, you know, what soil is, and then some things that you can do yourself to investigate the quality of your soil, and then what we can do as an institution. Okay, so. Uh, what is soil? And many of you already know this. This is an unconsolidated mineral or organic material. Um, and of course, this is on the surface of our earth. And we use this as a natural medium for growth 
and, and for the growth of land plants. Okay, so what we're talking about is that our soil is living. It, it's, and we want this soil to be thriving. And we want it to be rich with nutrients. Okay, and, and not toxins. And so I'm going to just speak just a little bit about toxins at the end. So you can actually begin to look at the quality of your soil yourself. Okay, so I've included a couple of links here that shares with you how you can actually do that. And it's through the USDA. Um, so I'm just going to briefly just talk about each one of these tests that you can do for yourself. And, and then again, we'll end up talking about uh, what the bigger instrumentation can do. So the, you know, the bigger instrumentation that's going to provide quantitative. But right now you can look at your soil for quality. OK, so the, the first test is the soil respiration. Um, what you want to test for here is the production of CO2. And this CO2, this is going to be, uh, this is going to come from microorganisms or macroorganisms, or it can even come from the root. Okay. Uh, for the soil respiration, you want it to be, you know, highly variable. You want, it needs to be strongly affected by the water and the temperature. Uh, some indication of soil respiration respiration is that you can look at the color of your soil. So there's a whole color chart that can even tell you about your soil, you know, just from following this chart. Um, one thing that you want to be careful of is, of course, if you're doing tillage or if you're doing cultivation, this could, re could um, release your CO2. Following this test, you want to do an infiltration test. And so this measures how fast the water enters the soil. One of the things this is re really important is because, you know, water, we want to make sure that it's, it's not going to pond or that it's going to form erosion. So that's what this test will actually do. So you can, again, just do these things on your own. There's a bulk density. It's a bulk density test. On the other side, it's going to be a little the electrical conductivity test. But on the bulk density test, this is where you're going to actually just measure the density of your soil, okay? So you would dry your soil first, okay? You will weigh it. Then after that, you will convert it into a volume, okay? And what you really want is something that's along, um, the density of 2.5 to 2.8 grams per cubic centimeters. Organic particles, because one thing that you have to be concerned with, every region, particles, they're not going to be the same size. But if you have organic particles, then it's going to be typically less than one grams per cubic centimeters. So um, things that you need to keep in mind when it comes down to the bulk densities that you don't want your soil to be compact. And so you need to really consider your methods, such as, you know, how you are cultivating, or, you know, it, are the cows trampling on your farmland or the use of machinery and even rain can compact your soil. So we want that, that soil to be able to 
actually breathe. Electrical conductivity, this is going to measure the amount of salt. And so there are several salts in your soil. So you won't be able to identify those salts just by using this method. But this can tell you if you have a good level of, of salts in the soil. Remember, you want just the right amount, but excess um, salt would definitely inhibit the growth of plants. After you test for the for the salinity, then you want to test for acidity or test as well as to see if it's alkaline. So alkaline, uh, so those of y'all who are familiar in chemistry, that, that's the same thing as a base. So you want to test for acidity or you want to test to see if it's a base. And you can do that with the pH. Uh, some people have pH meters. You can also um, obtain, you know, the, the the color test as well, and it'll tell you more about the pH. But but the thing is, is that not only are you learning about, you know, if it's acidic or if it's basic, but you're also learning about um, the type of soil that you have. And so I included a little chart here um, that's on the side. I'm not going to really go through it at this time because of because of time's sake. And I'm trying to get through every one of the um, the tests that you can do. Okay, soil nitrate. So again, we want to have a good level of soil nitrates, but soil nitrates also, if in excess, can be a problem you know, for your soil. So the soil nitrate test is going to determine how much nitrates are available uh, for the plants to actually thrive. This is formed, you know, through your organic matter, crop residue, or manure as well. Uh, some people do also add this due to fertilizers that's being used as well to actually increase the amount of nitrates that is needed for the soil. Um, however, if it can naturally be done, this is, this is all great and wonderful as well. So uh, with the nitrates, do note that, you know, if you have a good level of this, this can be leached, but it really just depends on the season that you're in, as well as, you know, are you, um, in a region, you know, that, that consists of a lot of moisture or are you in a more dry region? So this is going to vary with your nitrates. Do keep in mind that your nitrates, they can convert over into nitrites. If it does become nitrites, you do want to avoid that. But usually it's only a small amount that, that actually is produced. But we want to try to avoid the nitrites if at all possible. And so that's where it goes from um, NO3, which is a nitrate, to a nitrite, which is NO2. Okay, and so the next test is the aggregate stability. So this is dealing with your soil. Is it more attracted? I like to put it this way in layman terms. Is it more attracted to itself than it is, you know, to to the um, to its surroundings? Okay. So what it is, is building an aggregate and the way that you can test um, if it's going to remain aggregated is using water pressure. OK, so the greater the stability of this uh, aggregates, the less soil erosion that you're going to have. 
if it's um, unstable, then this could lead to a crust development and also surface sealing. Uh, the reason, again, why you want to do this study is because you do want to, you know, prevent the erosion, but it's also going to protect your soil matter as well. This will improve the water and air mobility. So you need the water and air mobility, of course, in the soil so that you can have root growth and also improve and improve the habitat for your organisms in the soil. Okay, soil staking. Um, so this is the stability of the soil fragments that's in the water. And this is just a process of fragmentation that you want to be able to test. This could affect your soil water content, the rate of wetting, the texture, um, the mineralogy of your soil, and also the organic matter. This can be a problem uh, when the soil is very dry. And so then these little guys here are important too. You want to test and see how many earthworms that you have per square feet. Okay, so this also allows for you to have fertile soil. And also it, it, it aerates that soil too as well. So um, earthworms are included in this. Okay, and then for the for the soil, you want to test your water. So again, the water that you're using to water your, your crops with, you want to go back again and look at the electrical conductivity of this, and as well as look at the nitrates and nitrites. And so we're looking for the same thing as we did with the soil. Okay, so I, I don't really need to go through this particular slide, but again, conductivity that's going to measure, you know, how much salt that's in the water, as well as measure how much nitrates or nitrites that are present. Okay. And also, you can do physical observations as well. And so, the five are topsoil, you want to measure your topsoil depth, the root growth, um, penetration resistance, soil structure and soil texture. And then this is just a diagram of the different types of um, soil that's out there. You know, you have clay and silt, and then they have measurements that are around them um, that also, again, will help you with your analysis. Okay, so now when you need that more detailed analysis of the soil, then you wanna consider um, reaching out to a testing lab or institution, you know, such as Texas Southern. The three instruments that that would be of interest to you would be the GC MassSpec, the LC, and also the ICP, the ICP OES. And I always call it MS because they used to have it coupled with the MassSpec, but now it is coupled more so with um, spectroscopy, instrument spectroscopy. But let's first talk about this GCMS or LCMS. So the GCMS and LCMS, this will cover your pesticides. GC will be able to handle the ones that are volatile. Those that are non-volatile, you would have to use the LCMS. Uh, why is this important? Because when they're making these uh, pesticides or herbicides, things like that, they have toxic chemicals that are being put into the soil. So, and keep in mind that these things do not, some of them do degrade 
as we would want them to, but others do not. And they also can form derivatives, which is what we call uh, pesticides residues. So the, the pyrethroids and the pesticides are the two that you can investigate. With the pyrethroids, you want to look at the LCMS. And this is commonly used in excess insecticides. Um, the problem is with this is that it is not water soluble. So if you don't know basically what that means, that means that it is not dissolving um, in the water. So it's actually a solid, you know, or uh, it can precipitate out. Okay. And then this can also strongly absorb to your soil. So basically it's telling you it's hard to get rid of. The pesticides, this lowers the plant quality and it threatens also one's health. Now with the ICP that's over in the right-hand column there, these it can measure toxic elements, okay? And so we also call these our heavy metals there, but it also can measure your macronutrients and micronutrients. And so that might be something that you wanna know uh, when it comes to your crops. And so this is just pretty much um, the, a general list of all of the elements that the ICP can measure. So GCMS, just a little bit more details about it. This is one that you wanna look at your pesticides, but also you can look at pesticides with LCMS. This is just a few of the pesticides that are listed. So these are the ones that you know, the Stockholm Convention that they, the initial 12 that they considered that needs to be banned internationally. Now, has the United States adopted these? They've adopted some, but not all of these things. But please note that you want to consider uh, what the international experts have said versus what national says. Because national, you know, of course, we know the United States will approve things that can still be used when we know that it's actually harmful for our environment. Uh, so this is, again, just a list. I'm not going to read those things to you, uh, but you'll be surprised that some of these things still do exist right now in our foods. Although they say they're banned, those that are banned in this country, they're still being used to this day. Okay, the LC, again, that, that would also take care of the other pesticides, which are non-volatile. But then here is just a list of these, um, these pyrethroids that I had mentioned earlier, just to show you that it's just really a lot on this list. And, and it's important that we just really cover everything when we're looking at the soil. And so then this is the ICP. Again, ICP are going to look at your metals. So these are just some examples here. My macronutrients, which is a daily intake of 100 grams per day. Uh, that includes sodium, magnesium, potassium, and calcium. Micronutrients, which is less than 100 milligrams per day. Iron, copper, zinc, or manganese. And then you have your heavy metals. So this is just a few of the heavy metals that were mentioned. But you can look at, you know, nutrients, but as well as you can look at, you know, toxins as well. And I think that might be it. Yeah, that's, that's it. Okay. No, soil management and nutrient management is so very important. 
And I really want to thank you because as we ramp our programs up and our uh, partners come on board, I think a lot of the testing that we want to make sure that our farmer members are uh, producing good quality uh, produce and products that are using uh, sustainable practices and really understanding what it means to have non-toxic soils and being able to grow food in a very natural way, it becomes very important. And so I'm, I'm hoping our, our viewing audience really understands how we kind of put this program together today, uh, looking at alternative revenue streams, but also those revenue streams uh, adding good soil nutrient content and being uh, a non-traditional aspect of farming, uh, having resiliency and understanding that farmer uh, uh, farming is not easy, but it has come a long way. And with technology, um, it even makes it better. Uh, and we know that we can grow whether we're in an urban area or we are in a peri-urban or rural area. And so the $1.3 trillion agricultural uh, agribusiness industry is alive and well. Uh, it provides great, great uh, career opportunities and onset. And that's gonna bring us to our next discussion after we take a very quick stretch break. And we're going to come back and we're going to hit our panelists here. Uh, Legacy, the next generation. And it is so very important that we engage our young individuals in the agribusiness industry because it is not just about putting seeds in the ground. It's being vertically integrated and staying connected to the revenue source from seed to shelf. And so this is what the 2020 Cooperative is all about, assisting black and brown farmers, small scale farmers, and being able to vertically integrate and compete on a scale that will yield legacies to come, yield benefit for legacies to come. So let's take a quick break and we will hear from our panelists, the next generation. Black farmers have been excluded from federal farm programs, a systematic pattern of discrimination that the U.S. Department of Agriculture acknowledged decades ago. And yet proposals to compensate farmers for past wrongs have languished in controversy and red tape. The most recent include the Biden administration's efforts to earmark such funds in its American Rescue Plan and now Build Back Better. In the 1920s, 14% of all farmers in the United States were African American. That number is down to less than 1.5% today. In 2010, black farmers were offered limited compensation after a class action suit. But the settlement was marred by allegations of fraudulent claims on one hand and the exclusion of possibly thousands of legitimate claimants on the other. We know for a fact. Uh, that socially disadvantaged producers were discriminated against by the United States Department of Agriculture. Uh, we, we know this. If a black farmer lived across the road and this bill went through, I see him get his mortgage paid off. It ticks me off because that was money stolen from me given to him. John Stevens is a fifth-generation farmer in Pine County, Minnesota, and is a well-known advocate of the environmentally friendlier regenerative farming. Do you think that discrimination exists today against black farmers? As a federal system, I would say no. Now, when you go to your local office, sure. And that would go anyway, whether it's 
it's white to black, black to white. I, yep, there's racist people all over this country. What are these plaintiffs not understanding? Oh, I think they understand. We weren't able to pass on wealth. We weren't able to pass on a farm. And so to look at it and say, now your field is level? No. Bernard Bates' family, were, they were denied the opportunity to continue to farm. That didn't level the field. John Stevens says white farmers are as likely today to face rejection at the USDA or at a private lender. He says the key is to persevere. I don't want to hear your victim story. So what if, what if I discriminate against you on something? Is that going to stop you? If you're the government, possibly, or you're the banker. Go to another bank. Postpone it a couple years. If you want to be a farmer, if you want to be anything, just pick your bootstraps up and forget the rest of the world and do what you need to do. Well, I made my own straps and my own boots. Antoine Downs can count on his hands how many black farmers he met when he was a child. Well, a lot of the, the, the black kids never see someone that look like them. Being a black farmer has always been difficult. And I always knew there was a problem, but I really didn't get it until I was the one that they were doing it to. This farmer gives each of his children a definite share in the proceeds of the crop. These little girls are working not only for the family, but also for themselves. There's wholesome personal pride back of this dexterity. With the help of extension specialists, farmers in the peanut region are giving more and more consideration to the problems of handling this important crop. In certain districts, the extension workers have pushed the production of long staple cotton. A Negro family picking Sea Island cotton grown from seed secured through the help of the county agricultural agent. This is the way the humans who harvest the food for the best fed people in the world get hired. One farmer looked at this and said, we used to own our slaves, now we just rent them. Grandfather would say the land knows no color. Never mistreated anybody. You know, people do. This is the story of an injustice that begins with slavery, continues through decades of government sponsored discrimination, and even now is a fight for survival. Black farmers have faced discrimination for centuries, and today there's fewer than 49,000 of them in the U.S. That's less than the entire student body of the University of Texas. We had to fight for the land, fight for the equipment. But white farmers around here, their land was inherited down. We've been uh, degraded and humiliated. For decades, the U.S. Department of Agriculture systematically favored white farmers by denying loans to black farmers. Welcome back. We're moving into phase two, and I hope everybody had a good opportunity to stretch their legs, uh, take that bathroom break as necessary. But I am extremely excited about this next panel that we have because it is our future. And I'm very excited about the individuals who will be joining us. Um, 
I'm excited about, about a couple of different things as it relates to there. So I don't want to belong it any longer, but let me just tell you a little bit about our first panelist uh, that will be here. Her name is Candace Clark, and she's a graduate of the Piney Woods School, which is a historically Black boarding school. Candace um, attends Tuskegee, well, I should say she's an alumnus of Tuskegee University uh, and is from Chicago, Illinois. She has a BS in agricultural business with a focus on sustainability and a certificate in international relations, as well as a former USDA 1890 scholar. That means that there is scholastic opportunity for our young black and brown individuals to go to college and receive additional financial assistance if they knew about agribusiness. So uh, Candace was an 1890 scholar, but her experiences abroad as an African-American woman cultivated her internal obligation to serve her community and those like it abroad. What she does is she hopes to empower developing communities by learning and being a medium for sustainable agricultural techniques to small and middle farmers internationally. I might also add, Candace is actually joining us from Liberia, which she's uh, currently working on her PhD and she's there doing some fantastic things. I can't give you all the detail on it, but uh, she is joining us from Liberia there. So she seeks to reconnect agriculture to her generations uh, and her culture to the world through regenerative and holistic practices. She graduated from American University School of International Service with an MA in Natural Resources and Sustainable Development. Uh, she considers herself a farm plug a sustainable agricultural ed educator and intersectional advocate that farms. Using her experiences, she hopes to break down barriers by helping to develop and increase the capacity of her neighbors while simultaneously encouraging agricultural representation and intersectional justice. She's excited to pass on tools for people to cast their buckets down where they are as Booker T. Washington once says, cash your buckets down where they are. And so in the communities, through holistic and sustainable agriculture, I bring to you one of our panelists, Candace Clark. Hello, thank you so much. For the okay, <laughs> all right. And so our next two panelists that will be joining us is what I call the dynamic duo. I am just, so proud of these gentlemen because they have embraced the collective within their own family. And they are part of a family uh, entity that has embraced farming and they are currently uh, farming, but also understanding how to vertically integrate that. And they have produced a product called Tusk. I think you can see it here. Um, it is an excellent product that they are in production with uh, and rolling out across the country with it. But what these individuals have in common is that they have embraced a collective effort. Derek, farming is not easy. And so what I mean, they embrace the collective effort. Uh, I'm going to let them tell a little bit about their, their own story in regards to growing up, but they embrace the collective. Derek, in his professional life, he's an IT uh, specialist uh, by day, 
farmer by evening, nights, weekends, <laughs> holidays, everything else. Um, but he's a twofold. Maurice, which is his brother, is an entrepreneur. He's a painting contractor, hardest man I, I know working. He's actually working now, but he has joined us. So he's a, a, a contractor professional uh, by day, farmer by evening nights, weekends, holidays, any other time in between. But I think the story these young people have to tell in regards to their journey uh, is something we want to hear. So let's kick this off. Candace, who are you and where did you grow up at? Tell us a little bit about that. I'm originally from Chicago, uh, the east side to be exact, if you know about that. Um, and I grew up, like I said, on the east side in the South Shore community. And originally, I didn't really see the connection that I had with agriculture until like, you know, journaling and doing some reflecting. But my grandfather uh, was actually a sharecropper in Arkansas and he moved the family to Chicago and he owned his house and then he bought the lot next to his house and then basically converted it into an urban junk man slash hydroponics slash growth space for him, right? And so when I was younger, you know, everyone would consider him the joke man, but I remember walking through um, that area and seeing, you know, he had koi fish and the koi fish were filtered, the water was filtered into them and that same water was helping to grow his strawberries. So I didn't understand it at the time, but that was aquaponics. And so that was my first, that I can personally say, that was my first real encounter with agriculture. Um, and I'm so thankful that it came from my grandfather. Uh, rest in peace, Papa God. Uh, but yeah, that's me in a nutshell. Okay. All right. Derek and Maurice, where'd you all grow up at and what was it like? Go, go ahead, Maurice. I'll go first, Derek. No, you go ahead. You go ahead. Okay. Um, well, we grew up, Derek and I, we are brothers, uh, if you can't tell. Um, we grew up in the, the metropolitan, Washington metropolitan area. We're from DC and PG County, Maryland. Um, our family, who currently has a hemp farm in Halifax, Virginia, had that land passed down to us from our grandfather, which was passed down to him from, our, from his great great grandfather. The land was actually purchased in 1906, which hence the, the, uh, the slogan that we use 100 years in the making because um, when they purchased that land in 1906, they had no idea that it would create a legacy for their future generations, um, starting with the hemp farm. And now we have the Tuss uh, hemp seed infused alcohol. We have a Revoc in the rum. So I hope that answers your question, Mr. Sharon. I didn't want to get too far into babbling. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. So, so tell me, uh, Candace, in your in your your field, you indicated that that grandpa kind of got you stimulated. But why farming? Why pursue your educational pursuit in in farming? And I'm going to roll that right into uh, Mo and Derek. You know, why did you want to embrace this whole farming type thing? And you from inner city D.C. Yeah, well, at first, you know, I think I was going through what every, you know, graduating senior um or high school student was thinking about like, what am I gonna do with my life? And I've always loved to eat. I've always loved food. I've always appreciated the way that food is able to bring people together across cultures. And then I was also like, man, if I get a job in food, I will never go out of work. As long as people need to eat, I'm always have a job. And so that was my initial mode of thinking when I entered into it. But when I got to Tuskegee, I started to learn more about the civil rights 
aspect to farming and what it has actually meant for our people over time. And that's when it took my, it became super personal for me and it became my form of activism. You know, some people march, some people um, organize the marches in, in different capacities. My thing is to support farmers. My thing is to farm love. My thing is, is agriculture. So that became my activism. So Derek, how about you? Why farming? Why not stick to your your IT specialty and make all kind of uh, greenbacks there and and say, okay, I'm gonna take my expertise and passion and and infuse it into to my family. Why farming? Uh, in short, uh, land as well, right? Um, so uh, we we come obviously we come from the younger generations, uh, and we would hear stories from. Uh, my mom and her, her her siblings about like when they were kids, they would go down to the farm and they would spend weekends there and they would help, you know, uh, farm and kill chickens and do all these other things. Um, and being that we were in a city uh, kids, we never experienced that. So we would always just live off of their stories. Um, and then, like my brother said, um, we had uh, our grandfather had some land uh, and we realized when we went down there one time that we had the opportunity to grow and buy some more land and we can start farming ourselves. Um, and I think that's kind of the renaissance um, as of late, especially with uh, younger generations, they're starting to realize that, you know, um, that we can live off our own land, we can grow our own food, we can, you know, build houses where we want to build. I think technology, and I'm still in technology, I love technology, I don't think that would ever change. Um, I think that we can just allow technology to serve us better and use it in, um, you know, better in different ways. And that's what one of the things that technology has offered us is to be able to work from anywhere. And unfortunately, the pandemic has kind of expedited that, too. But in short, uh, <laughs> your question was uh, why farming um, is, again, land is wealth um, and being able to have those skills of growing your own crops, living off of your own land, um, you create a sense of um, true independence um, in, in our thoughts um, and in our beliefs that we can teach our kids to do. They can be completely independent. They can live off their own land. Um, technology will be everywhere. So um, you don't necessarily have to be in a city or in a highly populated area to experience, um, you know, making a living if it comes to that point. Uh, but yeah, it's just um, land is wealth and, and we want to just be able to pass that education and knowledge down to our kids. Okay, how about you, Maurice? Why, why, why? I, I know you're one of the hardest working men that I know. Uh, you're always working at it. Uh, why did you say, let me take my expertise and passion and infuse it into uh, my family in this farming uh, venture? Well, uh, the first thing I thought about was the opportunity to create an everlasting legacy for our family. Um, that was the very first thing when it came to mind. I mean, it, it helped that I was already a hemp industry enthusiast. So uh, that just made it easier for me to get on board with it. But um, just for the, like, like my brother said, it just creates opportunities, not for just us, but for our children and then the future generations to come to show that, uh, you know, you don't always have to sit behind a desk or you don't always have to, you know, follow the, you know, the normals, the normals of society was though you have to do this and do that, you know, go to college. And I mean, I say anything is wrong with college, but some people might not excel in that, you know, aspect of their life. But you put them on the farm, you put them in front of a tractor, put them on a tractor or put them in front of a processing machine and they can turn into the, the absolute best processor in the world with, without having any education in it. Um, I think it's just the opportunity that it allows to just for us to be able to help other families. 
um, help other generations, help, you know, people in need. It's just, I look at it from all different vantage points, I guess. Um, it's just being able, the number one thing is the independence it gives us to be able to own our own land, to do what we want with it, you know, and just pass, keep that tradition of passing it down to the next generation and, and teaching them how to continue to build on it. All right. Uh, just just good information. And I love hearing the, from the young folks. And so um, I know you all are are younger and you're 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 fairly new into this. And but I know you've experienced some things um, on all different levels. And I know, Candace, you kind of travel around and you're with these FSAs, this, that and the other. Um, you know, just open the floor. What's been your experience thus far since you've been engaging in this agribusiness farming industry? What's been your experience? Yeah, I mean, we've experienced, again, we are um, pretty new into this. I think we're, we're um, when we started the business, um, the original seven, which was uh, me, my mother, um, two of my cousins and, uh, and, and three of my, my mother's siblings. Um, we started it back in 2019, so we're still relatively new. Um, and some of the things we have experienced is that, um, you know, uh, unfortunately, um, uh, prejudice and racism kind of follows you everywhere you go. Um, there, there's times where we're, we're met with certain restrictions or not necessarily restrictions, but we're met with certain uh, barriers or the barrier of entry to something is really uh, difficult or, or, or hard to, to gather all of the information and be able to submit all the forms and all the proper documents. Sometimes documents get lost, unfortunately. And when I say lost, I mean they get lost or they get mis or they get misplaced. Um, so it's a lot of uh, legwork to follow up with a lot of organizations and a lot of these, um, you know, these government entities and uh, special, specifically when it's dealing with like farming, with like, um, you know, your FDAs and stuff like that. Uh, so we, we've been met with those kind of um, those kind of uh, hurdles. Uh, and when learning anything new, um, you're going to you're going to have that knowledge gap. And so, you know, us being able to just kind of learn on the fly, none of us have any like formal education in agriculture. None of us have any formal education in like farming or, or, or running or growing um, a spirit business or a spirit brand. Um, a lot of it is just learning on the fly. And I think that's a part of the growth and the growing things. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, some of those restrictions uh, definitely come from, you know, dealing with, uh, you know, prejudice or. Or, or, or people um, not willing to help you as much um, if they feel that you're a competitor or they feel that you may be taking, you know, potentially food off of their table. So, um, you know, we're just finding creative ways to work around that. And then we're also finding um, technological advances to um, to expedite certain things that may have taken a long time otherwise. Okay. Maurice, I know you all are in a very particular industry. Uh, as it relates to your first product with hemp that you're rolling off. What has been some of your experience uh, entering into this particular industry? Uh, just getting people on board with the idea of what we created. Um, with the stigma of you know, hemp in the cannabis industry, when a person hears the word hemp, the first thing they think of is you know, marijuana. And it's that's been the most challenging part is when people hear the word hemp, they're like, oh no, is it is something in it that's gonna cause me to fail a drug test or uh will it get me high, you know, things of that nature. Um outside of that, I I've I love challenges. So um me personally, I don't look at it as uh as a feat. I look at it as you know, opportunity to come and just uh presenting this amazing award-winning product that we've that we've cultivated 
um i i just i'm excited to know that people will soon see that this is something that um is a one of a kind is something that's that is to me is a game changer uh but just the challenges that outside of that is you know um getting the the approval of certain certain states to get on board with distribution and just like i said it's just the this the idea of getting people on board with hemp being in an alcohol um is mm -hmm. is fairly new to the industry um certain certain they have a few of them out there but uh none are uh minority owned uh we are, we are the first completely fully minority owned hemp infused spirit company which i think is a major major deal uh but outside of that i just feel like that that would be our ultimate challenge too just you know people understanding that this is a family doing this not not just one person and once they once they get on board with what we have the challenges will slowly you know them away mm -hmm. but with any with with any new industry you're getting into when you know you're new to it when nobody knows who you are you know you're going to have certain pushbacks you're going to have certain challenges it's mm -hmm. but it's about the perseverance that our people has always had in us to continue mm -hmm. to fight and keep pushing mm -hmm. and i just feel like you know as long as we stay true to who we are and what we and what we believe then you know everything else will fall into place okay what would you say has been the most rewarding aspect of entering into this farming industry i'll go first uh okay. i say the the most rewarding thing is just you know just seeing the looks on our families' faces when we create new products and we come up with new things and new ideas um we have a really huge family so it's like uh just just to know that you know you see all your cousins and your aunts and my mom and my brother and my sister just all of us down on the farm together working uh because we like my brother said we all grew up in the city our parents you know spent time on the farm but we grew up all of us grew up in the city and just to see us being able to transition to that you know as they call it the country life uh it, it's been it's been quite rewarding um i i feel like the the monetary part of it you know isn't a reward for me because as long as you have a good product that's going to sell itself but the reward in it comes when you can create that legacy for your family for generations to come that's that's what i see is the most rewarding part of it um, I would say again, I'll uh, you know correlate with my brother a lot on that was like being able to um, you know show our family and our family see the efforts and the labors of, uh, of the work that we all have done. Um, and again, it's not just one or two people that are doing this. It's a minimum of like seven or eight of us, and then we have other cousins who come in and help. You know, uh, and, and and they're able to experience it as well. But for me, uh, some of the most rewarding things is the education, the things that we're learning. That's intellectual property. Nobody can take that from us. Uh, you know, nobody can, you know, uh, steal that per se. Um, that's something that when we do grow and we do experience these things and, um, and we get that education and we get those experiences, um, those are things that we can, you know, again, pass down. And those are things that we can uh, we can have. And those are that, that is completely our own um in that in that regard so being able to learn uh, and being able to grow that's some of the most rewarding things because and now we can take it anywhere you know now we can we can grow another farm and with that education that we've and those experiences that we've um we've gotten uh from this uh first farm we can you know pass that on and do the same thing and almost like a rinse and repeat so i would say um probably the education along okay. with family 
All right, Candace. And so you're going to get a twofer. I want you to tell us what's been your experience when you travel around and you're meeting with these FSA organizations and what has been the most rewarding experience to you in this agricultural pursuit? So what have I learned? That's the first question, right? Um, well, the first thing that I learned moving around was how many people on earth are actually involved in agriculture, right? And I think coming from Chicago, from an urban space, when I would think about agriculture, my first brain would go, oh no, slavery, oh no, I'm not doing that, oh no, cooking cotton. But as I was able to get more and blessed to be able to go all over the world with it, I began to understand that agriculture is actually where the wealth is, right? So my generation right now, we got, you know, people that talk about the metaverse, we're talking about NFTs, we're talking about um, really entering the digital space. But for me personally, one thing that is never gonna lose its value is real and estate, right? And so when we talk about wealth building long-term, um, I began to understand not only how important that was and remains to be for people all over the world, but also how that disenfranchisement that we've experienced as black people in the United States is also something that has happened all over the world, right? So that layer of struggle, that layer of working to build our own capacity and really leverage our past is something that really people all over the world, indigenous people, people of color, black people, are we all have that struggle, right? And so it it's, it's a unifying thing, right? Especially in the face of climate change, right? Even when they were talking about cannabis, I'm over here in my seat because I say it loud and proud. I am a cannabis enthusiast. Um, with Farm Plug, the first product that I had was hemp rolling papers. And the purpose of that was to get people to understand like hemp is so much more. And I, I love that you all are doing what you're doing. I think it's so dope. I'm about to get online and get me a case um, of your tusk. And I'm gonna take it down to Tuskegee and we are gonna have a party, okay? Cause that is too good to not do. Um, but yeah, I just began to understand like, yo, especially with cannabis, right? Um, people understand cannabis, people know what it is, especially my generation, right? But they don't look at it as an agricultural crop. They don't look at it as an agricultural commodity. And being in the policy space with agriculture is always so interesting to me, um, you know, over the last couple of years, how the government has finally decided, oh, well, you know, you can do camp and, you know, less than 0.03% THC. And I understand that for people in that space, I have to be very, very specific about it. Um, but on my, when, I, when I put my advocacy hat on, it's all cannabis. You know what I'm saying? It is all cannabis. It's all medicinal. And there's so much about it that we don't know that we it's a wide open space for opportunity and i when i got back on i heard the brothers talking about education and my phd is around agriculture education and communication um and so really understanding that it's not what because a lot of people have this perception that young black people and um millennials and things like that that we don't care about agriculture we don't care about the earth we're not interested in, in the environment but i think the way that the conversation has been posed all of this time has intentionally left us out of those conversations, right? So when I'm scrolling on Instagram and I see people talking about this ain't your grandma's heat or this can't be the same uh, the same son that Celia and her sister was, you know, playing hand games under, you know, it's it's funny. We bring culture and we, you know, make it a funny thing, but that's how black people, that's how we talk about climate change. That's how we talk about agriculture. And so in my research and what I'm what I'm working to do right now, one of the biggest things, ultimately what I would say is one of the biggest things that I've learned is how interested we really are and how much we really have to gain. 
Thanks, and I and I think you did a good job uh, um, uh, articulating that to us. And so we want to bring it up, and I'm going to put one question out there, which is, you know, why you all are on the panel as young black women and and, and men. Uh, entering the agricultural industry. And I think you all have said a wealth of information, but what's the one thing that you all would say to a young person either wanting to enter into agribusiness, wanting to explore, or is currently looking to get into farming? What would you say to them? Um, honestly, the first thing I would tell them is get a mentor. I would tell them, find a farmer near you. I would tell them, find an elder, find someone who's been doing it, who can understand not only the struggle, but the rewards, the benefits, who can effectively relay the power, the ancestral power of putting your hands in the ground, the healing and therapeutic powers of putting your hands on the ground. I would tell them, find a mentor. Find someone older than you who is in it and has been doing it and can help you weather the storms that you are, whether you may not know it, whether you know it or not, that you're kind of signing up for. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. How about you, Maurice? What would you tell that young person entering into? Uh, the first thing I would say is just be patient. Um, you know, the whole process takes time and just, you know, learning and preparing, especially if you're new to it, um, just give yourself some time to make mistakes and learn from those because those, you know, experience has always been the best teacher in my eyes. So um, just take your time and, you know, uh, if you have a great idea, know it's a great idea and and capitalize on it and do your best to see it through until, it, until the end. That, that would be my great, you know, my advice. Mm -hmm. Okay. And Derek, bringing us home for the panel discussion, what would you say to that young Black male or female farmer wanting to get into the business? Um, that it's okay with not knowing everything and that it's okay with not having all things planned and everything laid out before you get started. Um, uh, familiarity in its existence makes all things tame, right? So um, the more you get familiar with something, even though it's new, uh, the more, you know, you get around it, the more you engulf yourself in it, um, you'll go, you'll get better at it. You'll do, um, you know, you'll start to learn, you'll start to grow. Um, and that's something that, you know, I feel that all young black people should do is, um, you know, get some type of, have some type of land to own and be able to live off of. So, yeah. Okay. And I want to thank each and every one of you all. I want to encourage you in your pursuit and in wrapping this up, I would say to the young individual out there, be a part of the collective. Be a part of the collective and embrace the cooperative aspect of growing your business. And so that brings us into our next aspect of the, the uh, session here, which I'm extremely excited about. Our guest speaker is one who I have come to know since I have been engaged in this introduction to farming um, way by a challenge. I'm gonna call it a challenge and kind of cut through the chase on that. Uh, but in my professional career, uh, in answering the call of some black farmers who were looking at some success strategies, um, I came back to them with the notion that a cooperative would be the best model for them to be collectively successful 
and scale their farming practices. And lo and behold, um, I did not connect. I wasn't a farmer. I, I, I can be a business strategist, as in what my challenge was is what possibly could we do to become more profitable? And when my response came back um, as a cooperative and I kept digging into this thing, um, I ran across this great book called Collective Courage which is a very well-written book. And if you have not gotten that book and you're a farmer, you need to understand the significance of the collective courage. I'm not gonna say any more than that. I'm gonna bring our next speaker up, Dr. Jessica Gordon Nimard. Thank you so much. Thanks for that introduction. Um, it was great to hear the parts of the program that I heard the young people farming. It's so inspiring. Um, and I hope I can inspire you some more with some tales of our legacy of farming and cooperative ownership in particular. So I want to talk to you all about the power of African-American cooperatives and the research I've been doing um, over the past, actually it's over 20 years now of research. I also want to first just um, give acknowledgments, thanks to the organizers Thanks to all of you for all you do and for your persistence. I also want to acknowledge the original stewards of the land. At the moment, I'm in New York City, Lenape Nation land. I'm also often in DC, where I think some of you are in Pescataway land. Um, I want to bring in and acknowledge our ancestors, invite them to give us also courage and inspiration in this space and to recognize the struggles of all those combating anti-blackness, racism, patriarchy, police brutality, anti-small farms, etc. And of course, acknowledge our elders. So I'm here to really talk to you about the power of collective ownership and how African-Americans have, um, have really used that power pretty much from when we were probably on the slave ships on the Middle Passage, but definitely from when we hit here in the US, we were using notions that we had from our African ancestry about the power of collectives and collective ownership and collective work and opportunity. So I wanted to start us out with um, a famous black woman farmer who most people know because she was in SNCC and a voting rights advocate, but I hope we remember that she was a sharecropper and a cooperator. Um, in her last years of life, she created a cooperative farm in Mississippi. And one of the things she says is how important cooperative ownership of land is because it means opportunities, right, for group development of economic enterprises. And that notion of group development, right, it's not just about us as individuals, as you've already heard, but families and groups, right, and to make sure to develop the total community rather than monopolizing resources of a community. So what are cooperatives? I think you all know, I just wanted to quickly write their member-owned, member-run, member-serving businesses. They're usually created to solve economic problems and address community needs. Not so much about profit maximization, but about community and, and solving economic problems. These are values-based, jointly-owned enterprises that operate according to principles around membership, democratic governance, equality, justice, sustainability and care for community. So these are businesses that are able, you know, that are viable, but are running not on the profit motive, but on this motive of 
uh, addressing community problems and developing right the 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 group right the membership and the group and doing it through democratic governance and economic democracy. We also know that co-ops actually have better longevity than most traditional corporations, especially small businesses. Right, small businesses fail sixty to eighty percent in the first year. And only about 10% of co-ops fail in the first year. And after five years, traditional small businesses, uh, only three to 5% are still standing, whereas 90% of co-ops are still operating. So that longevity, not just the values and the principles of how to operate together and how to support community, but also the fact that these are very viable business um, structures. And we also have evidence that cooperatives address the effects of crises and survive crises better. And you'll see in some of my examples, I even show co-ops that were actually started during crises like the Great Depression, and then we're able to help people weather those and, and come out on the other side much stronger. And we also know the more we've studied cooperatives is that really all populations in every era of human history on every continent use economic cooperation and have co-ops. Um, it, co it stems from the, you know, the human notion of the common good, the commonwealth, the commons, uh, collectivism, mutual aid. We've got um, long histories of revolving loan funds and rotating savings and credit, susus. Uh, we've got notions from like the Kwanzaa principles, uh, collective work and responsibility, as well as cooperative, cooperative economics. And we know that indigenous cooperative efforts like what First Nations Native Americans, early African civilizations have all thrived, really started with cooperation. Economic cooperation is probably the very first economic system that any group of people have practiced. In African American history, I was able to find a long and strong history of mutual aid and cooperative ownership, especially when reacting to discrimination and market failure. It was often a hidden history. It took me years to find uh, enough information to create to just publish a book because it was very difficult finding the information often because African-Americans were hiding what they were doing cooperatively because they didn't think the mainstream society would accept them. Um, and also sometimes it was just difficult because it was an alternative system, difficult to find actual documentation of it. But we also know um, that uh, white supremacists and white uh, competitors actually used uh, violence and white supremacist terrorism to actually thwart and stop uh, black cooperators and black co-ops. Co and so that would be another reason why we didn't find out too much about them because they're always so threatened and undermined. But I was able to put together a, a long history uh, and I published the book Collective Courage that was already mentioned. I also recently helped um, Esther West to do a study of Latinx co-ops. We didn't do the history. We were just actually doing um, a current scan of Latinx co-ops. So people are interested in that. I put that up there too. So what did I find? Hundreds of mutual aid societies, actually probably thousands, but I was able to document hundreds. Uh, there were black communal towns examples of formal and informal economic cooperation from really the 1780s onward. Um, but we know there was other kinds of mutual aid going on even before the 1780s. 
I was able to document about 162 legally incorporated cooperative enterprises uh, from the 1800s to the present. We didn't actually have co-op laws until about the 1890s. Um, so that's why uh, we also looked at mutual aid and economic cooperation. I also was able, there was a book by Du Bois in 1907 that talked about 20 other credit unions separate from the ones I found and 154 other co-ops. So not a huge, huge amount, but definitely a legacy worth looking at. And you'll see why I say worth looking at, because I'm going to give you a couple of um, examples quickly. Um, so we know uh, from the research I did, we know that African-Americans were looking for alternative economic solutions, often because they were left out, marginalized, and um, uh, hyper-discriminated against. And so the working together, pooling resources together, helped them to address that, to actually create their own businesses, survive uh, discrimination. We also know that when we uh, look up the records, the minutes of meetings, the speeches that black cooperators gave, that they talk about right, self-help ideology. They look back into um, what their ancestors did both on US soil and uh, in Africa. They talked about needing sometimes to voluntarily segregate economically so that we could have the power to control our own communities and our own economic activities. And we needed um, a sense of racial self-sufficiency in order to address and you know all the discrimination we were under. These co-ops also gave us a chance to design and manage goods and services in culturally, racially, and geographically sensitive ways. And I also found that a lot of these economic efforts really paralleled what was happening in the long civil rights movement. So all the ways that we were fighting for our civil rights, meaning changing laws, changing social relationships, that kind of thing. We were also doing this, these economic projects and arguing for economic cooperation. So when I tell the story of uh, the history of the African-American cooperative movement, I'm really also telling a piece of this long civil rights movement. Um, and I did mention the sabotage. So we have to we have to recognize that a lot of the efforts, even though I said there was so much success, a lot of the efforts were thwarted between just plain racial discrimination and, and financial sabotage, which we're all aware of, right? There was actually real competition and terrorism. Some of the cooperators were lynched. Some of the co-ops were undermined. Their water wells poisoned, their buildings burned down railroads wouldn't take their materials, that kind of thing. And yet, even in the face of all that uh, sabotage and terrorism, we have this long history of successful co-op development. So what were the accomplishments? Pooling resources, providing quality goods and services and access when they hadn't been, saving costs, increasing incomes and wealth, combating racial discrimination directly, you know, or economic racial discrimination, right? Increasing economic stability and self-sufficiency, group independence, saving and creating jobs, developing collective agency and action, and also developing leadership. So you'll see in some of these examples, the first one is from the late 1800s, early 18, sorry, the late 1880s and the early 1890s, the Colored Farmers National Alliance and Cooperative Union. It's actually, I think still, the largest black organization that we've ever had. 
but it was definitely the largest black organization of its time. And it was a combination of a black populist political party, a labor union and a cooperative development organization. And you can see how they saw, right, fighting again for civil and economic rights on the political side, uh, helping black farmers and black landowners to farm uh, successfully, doing it through cooperatives and arguing for black uh, laborers, farm laborers' rights. All They saw that all is connected and that black families and black communities couldn't really survive if we didn't connect all those. Um, they suffered a lot of, uh, of sabotage and terrorism, um, but they had an extensive system, particularly throughout the South, but even in some Northern places, probably had over a million members. Um, and so were able to establish co-op stores to buy goods and supplies in bulk and reduce prices. They shared equipment. They secured loans to pay off mortgages or to buy land. And again, there were this really fascinating combination of black landowners and black uh, farm workers. And so the, the but the uh, objective was for everyone to be able to own their own land, to stop sharecropping, um, to get better uh, prices for their goods, to have sh uh, cheaper supplies, all that kind of stuff. Um, and they were, uh, they were able to actually participate in a cotton picker strike in 1891, where they were demanding right higher prices for cotton laborers. And also um, one of the uh, groups actually created a, a cooperative cotton mill so that they could own again, own their own production. Uh, fast forward to 1922, the National Association of Colored Farmers started by 1930. They had 12 members in 12 different states and headquarters in Chicago. Their purpose was to stabilize African-American farm ownership again, improve farm living, using cooperative buying, production, and marketing. Again, this was another relationship between landowners and farm workers and enable, you know, to enable both to really make a, a living out of farming and to control their own farming. They helped their members to purchase farms, to secure better legal sharecropping contracts, to have stable living from their farms. And they, again, were very successful. They bought in bulk and saved members 20 to 40% cost of goods. They had access to more favorable credit because of the co-op. And over 10 years, most of their members who started out as tenants and sharecroppers actually became farm owners through the co-op. So again, pooling their resources to address the common problems of farming, um, co-ops were able to do that. And then uh, I think I just have two more to talk about because I want to make sure we have time for questions. Uh, during the Great Depression, North Carolina had an interesting project going on. Um, there were two black educational institutions, Bricks Rural Life and Terrell County Training School. Separately, they were both doing cooperative education and helping the parents of their children to do um, uh, bulk, uh, bulk buying and um, credit exchanges and uh, sharing of equipment and things like that so they could farm better. They realized by the late or mid-30s that they were doing similar things and came together and started a regional organization of black co-ops, the Eastern North Carolina Association of Black Credit Unions and Co-ops. Um, 
They started credit unions as well. And they also started doing co-op health insurance because they realized that was important. So they had a kind of an ecosystem of co-op development, um, organized the regional institution. And then in a, a, about five or 10 years later, they actually organized a statewide coalition to help train people about how to start credit unions and co-ops, especially in the black community. Um, BRICS, uh, the BRICS program started one of the first black uh, health services, co health co-ops. They also started a credit union. They had a co-op store um, and then a health program and they were really successful. They wanted a full-time nurse. They raised enough money for a part-time nurse, but then they were able to get the North Carolina State Department of Health to match what they had raised so they actually could pay for a full-time nurse on their premises. And then um, they did small purchasing, service groups, uh, et cetera. And by the 1940s, more than 75% of the families in their area had at least one member connected to the co-op. So the co-op had a real, a real presence there. Terrell County, right, did similar things to Brooks. They had study groups and cooperative economics. They started a credit union, a co-op store. And by 1941, they had a health service. This is all during the Great Depression. So again, you see right, the need, the needs during the Great Depression, but they were able to build up a stronger system. They had a healthcare program that was a co-op, um, 25 cent co-payment, a dollar a year membership fee, and uh, they guaranteed up to $100 in hospitalization if you needed it. And so then the statewide coalition uh, was able to actually get money from uh, the state agricultural department to help create manuals and workshops to promote co-op development uh, throughout the state, especially geared toward black folks. So here you see a huge ecosystem, education, health, um, uh, credit unions, farm services, bulk buying, et cetera, all working to support those communities during the Great Depression and even continuing afterwards. Uh, and they were so successful that within, uh, you know, they had started out in 1936 with three black credit unions. By 1948, there were 98 black credit unions, 48 additional co-ops. So I just want to end uh, with the Federation of Southern Cooperatives, which is uh, about 55 years old now. Um, it's our longest running black regional co-op development association. It started in 1967 after a meeting with uh, some black co-ops and uh, some, some of the major civil rights organizations with some money from some, uh, a federal, from some federal funds and some foundation funds, they came together and said the best thing they could do is have a regional co-op development association that would pr help provide funding uh, and mostly education and legal services. The Federation of Southern Cooperatives also uh, in a few years joined the Emergency Land Fund organization and became the Federation of Southern Cooperatives Land Assistance Fund to also help preserve black land ownership and black farms. Um, and so they have a whole system, as I said, in 54 to 55 years of um, doing support for hundreds of black and brown co-ops protecting black land ownership and also doing state and federal policy advocacy for black farmers. Um, and so I wanna end on youth again, you guys just heard from youth um, uh, with a youth urban agricultural project, but what I've learned about studying youth co-ops 
is that they really help young people to learn business skills, industry-specific skills. They help reinforce math and writing skills if you have to own and run your own company, right? Develop leadership and mentoring, build relationships with adults, but also these co-ops help young people to address problems in their communities and then to help them generate income and savings. Food from the Hood, which was in the 1990s in uh, LA, Crenshaw High School in South Central LA, they first started with a, um, a school garden and started uh, giving away the produce to the homeless. Then they started selling produce in a farmer's market. Then they learned some business methods and realized that if they produced something from their uh, product, they could uh, have some value added and make some extra money. So they started making salad dressing. They ran the company as a co-op voted that at least 50% of their profits would be saved for college scholarships, and then were able to award over $180,000 in the first 10 years uh, in college scholarships. So in addition to helping them stay in school and handle their school life, they also were helping feed the homeless and teaching agriculture in the high school, and then also able to make enough money so that they could save some so they had college scholarships and could go to college. So that's the end. Thank you so much. And I look forward to um, talking with you all, answering any questions. All right. Thank you very much, Dr. Jesse. And that's what I call her, Dr. Jesse, but Dr. Jessica Gordon Embark, um, Silent B, uh, there. But um, one of the questions I have is that it seems as though these Black cooperatives were extremely successful. And when you know better, you do better. So the 2020 Farmers Cooperative is a new uh, venture. We're a year old. Um, what I, I, I cringe when I think of the, the, the mention of these Black cooperatives that were so successful were actually sabotaged. They were destroyed. What bit of advice would you have for the 2020 Farmers Cooperative? Because we don't just want to exist. We want our members to thrive, to get a piece of that $1.3 trillion basket and be successful. And like you say, competition will breed certain enemies, but what, what bit of information or just could you give us as a thought oh. on what we should be looking at as a cooperative and, and our members? Yeah, absolutely. And I usually have a slide about, you know, how we how we resisted and how we um, persisted, even given all the sabotage, right? And sorry, I didn't put that in here, but at least it gives us a chance to talk about it. Um, I noticed a couple of things um, for the, you know, for the co-ops that did survive. Um, you know, some of them really didn't survive. And so there are some, you know, some very hard stories. Some only lasted 18 months, some lasted five years, some lasted 20 years, right? But for the the co-ops that were successful and sustainable, some of the similarities were how important the continuous education was, right? To make sure everybody, the new members, as well as the old members, as well as the community understood what this was about, right? That it's about solidarity economics. It's about working together, pooling our resources so that we're stronger, right? So the education component and that continuous education, not just education about how to do the business, not just education about how to run a co-op, but just education about why we're a co-op, why that model works, 
why we're using that model, that kind of thing was very important. A second thing that was really important was um, community support and organizational support. Some of the strongest uh, periods of, co of Black co-op development happened at the same time that there were strong Black organizations that were promoting and training people about co-op. So that 1880s period, it wasn't just the Colored Farmers National Alliance, but as I said, they were the largest Black organization of their time, and they were talking about promoting and helping people start co-ops. In the 30s, during the Great Depression, there were five or six different Black organizations that were promoting co-op development and supporting it. In the 60s and 70s, another period where there was a proliferation of Black co-ops, you had the Black Panther Party, you had other groups like most of the um, uh, civil rights groups who were quietly supporting co-op development and then helped to create the Federation of Southern Cooperatives. So you had co-op development. And then communities supporting some of these uh, co-ops that were uh, sabotaged, it, they were saved because communities came and literally put their bodies, you know, to protect them or <laughs> save them by donating money or making sure to use the co-op. So the co-op had clients and that kind of thing. So you can't under, we can't underestimate how important it was for community support mm -hmm. and that goes back to the education, right? Communities that understood what the co-ops were there for and what they were doing we're supporting those co-ops and then protecting them against some of the sabotage. Okay, um, I just want to, to announce to everyone, if you have a question for Dr. Jesse, please put it in the chat and, and we can address that. So if you have a question for Dr. Jesse, uh, please put it in the chat and address that. Um, I have another question to Dr. Jesse, and this is just as we uh, try to, to map out our journey uh, and things. And in the past, um, I look at the agricultural industry as a $1.3 trillion industry that has a humongous amount of economic opportunity behind it, uh, um, career opportunity behind it. Our traditional, and this is more for the younger people because I don't think our traditional organizations like the NAACP, the Urban League, all of these entities are recruiting younger people because of whatever. So my question is, based on your experience and even working with some of these older traditional type things, what can we do to encourage them to re-embrace the cooperative model, especially as it relates to cooperatives? I'm sorry, agriculture. agriculture. What can we do to encourage them and have them rethink the opportunity that's before us because we don't need another condominium in our communities unless those condominiums are being built in a green fashion where black farmers are growing hemp. We don't need, you know, for other people to be feeding our communities when we have black farmers that are collectively coming together that can provide that type of produce and things of that nature. So what can we do to re-engage those traditional Black organizations to re-embrace the agricultural cooperative? Right. Great question. Um, so I think I have probably three answers to that. Um, the first one is more about what we can do as a Black community. I'll go back to what the current Black organizations could be doing. Um, but I'm a, a strong supporter. And again, I see through history, the organizations that got young people involved in co-ops very early on. 
So the school gardens, I think, get young people understanding horticulture and getting, you know, interested in having their hands dirty, but also seeing what the school garden can do, right? It can help feed people in the neighborhood. Um, they can create a business around it and get some income for themselves. They can even, you know, earn enough money so they can go to college or have at least some money for college, right? So seeing all those connections, I think we can start doing little mini cooperatives in schools, like with first, second graders, but especially by middle school, they can be, um, with a little support, they can be uh, uh, running some of their own, a small, a little small business or uh, a small community garden or something like that. And then by high school, they can be actually running, you know, robust co-op businesses. So getting young people involved very early on with just the, the co-op model in general, but also with school gardens and community gardens, I think makes a big difference. I'm not a farmer, but, you know, my parents always love gardening. And I know once you get your hands in that dirt, there's nothing like it. We also know, right, that, you know, having your bare feet in those and the dirt pulls out the negative ions or whatever and makes right. So I think making sure we share that, but also giving young people, especially urban kids, the opportunity to do that so they can see you can make a real living. This helps the community. It helps them, their families. Right. See that connection. So I think just that learning by doing and being in there is a one thing um, for the black organizations. And I've. Um, tried to do this, kind of go to some of their annual meetings and present workshops on this. I think people just need to know that this is viable, right? Because there's still so much, you know, we basically live in a racial capitalist society, right? So not only are we, you know, stereotyped that Black folks can't do anything, let alone farm, right? We're also stereotyped that, you know, not stereotyped, but we're also in a system that's against us doing and mm -hmm and doing better. And so we have to show people that this is actually a viable model, right? That co-ops are a strong, that actually have longer longevity, that are a strong model and um, give these examples. That's partly why I wrote the book so that we would have these examples. Cause when I first started talking about this, people were all like, oh, black people don't do that. We can't do it. We don't know how to do it. It's not a good model, you know? And I also don't blame, you know, we live in a capitalist society. Why would we want to do something alternative? We want a piece of the capitalist pie, right? But the capitalist pie isn't necessarily the thing that's going to do the best by us, right? Mm -hmm. It's already ruining our environment. It exploits us. And so the more we can have those conversations among these organizations, the more they can then also help promote. And some of them are now helping to promote conversions of um, Black-owned businesses that are retiring, you know, converting them to their workers and things like that. So we are getting some movement. And I've also seen a lot of young folks who are involved in urban agriculture and agriculture are moving back, like we saw the, the panel you just had, moving out of the cities into the back into the country. So we already have some of that. So I think telling the stories would be the third thing, right? And you're already doing that. I think we need to tell the stories. People need to tell the stories for themselves, what they're doing, why they're doing it, why they're back to farming, and then connect it to the, um, the climate crisis, right? Because we you know, any of us who understand the climate crisis realize that agriculture and community control of agriculture is part of what's the solution. Okay. Okay. And Dr. Jesse, we have uh, two questions here. Um, the first is from, well, both are from Andre McKinney, but uh, it's a two-part. Um, and basically the question is, what are the things that we have learned based upon past experiences as far as exposure to the media 
that we need to be concerned about today? And then secondly, how can we protect our efforts? Right. So I think the lessons learned are how insidious the sabotage is. And part of the sabotage is about the message, right? So we need to figure out how to control the message. And that's where I feel like that combination of, you know, public education, good knowledge about what we have accomplished, what the model can do and why it works is so important. And then um, the lived experience, right? That's why I also say, you know, start with young people, anything that young people are involved in, their families will get involved in usually, right? So that's a way to kind of get everybody if we start with young people. I think um, we do have to have a good communication strategy, right? We've got, there's so much misinformation and denigration out there. We've got to be aggressive with a good communication strategy. And that also means, you know, a group like yours, right? Federating, right? It doesn't have to be just each individual farmer or farm, right? A whole, you know, as many organizations as we can get to pull these things together, to work together, um, to connect the issues and the messages and to get those messages out. Um, I think that, you know, I, I'm sorry to keep talking about education, but I don't know how to get around it. We can't really do this without good education. Um, and then together, right, this collective action, right? If we're all telling the same stories, making the same points, people will hear us, media will find us. Um, the group in Georgia, right, that started, bought that land to start their own co-op town or whatever, right? They got a little bit, they got some good coverage when they first announced it. They, I don't know that they were able to keep up the coverage, but that would be another part of a media strategy, right? A communication strategy. How do you keep it alive? How do you keep telling the story, uh, bringing the story up, reminding people that we're doing this and more people could or can do it, that kind of thing. So I, I think really communication strategies. And then, as I said, with co-ops, we do have, we show how they work. And so just keep reminding people how they work and why they're important. Again, I think connecting to um, not just our well-being as a community, but to the climate crisis. I think we've got to connect all the issues and build ecosystems around all the interlocking issues that co-ops can help address. Okay, uh, we have one last question here, and it's from Mildred Johnson. And Mildred asked the question, today's society made veganism and vegetarianism sexy. How do we tie farming to this movement? Organic meat eating is considered sexy. Where is the sexy in farming? And let me just say this too, because um, this is my thinking and, and I just want you to reel me in or, or guide me in the right direction. Um, I believe the stereotype about farming um, and it's, it's one of those isms that we have to retell the story, but when mom and daddy who were sharecroppers and I'm mom and daddy, because I'm a lot older, but when mommy and daddy were sharecroppers, they told their youngins to get a good education, get out of here and don't ever look back to do this farming stuff again because you're better than this. You don't need to be doing this. And so that that mindset of this agribusiness industry, i.e. vegetarianism, veganism, all of that, we kind of disconnected it. And I'm trying to, to, to figure out how do we, 
how do we do what Mildred said? How do we put the sexy back in to to farming? How do we put that back in there? Yeah, um, it's a great question. I don't have all the answers, but what I'm thinking of as you guys are talking and asking this is um, one of the ways to sort of put the sexy in or back in, I don't know if it was ever sexy, but anyway, um, for African-Americans is to connect it to liberate, you know, to our liberation, right? In the past, I think families were saying, get out of it, right? Because we seem so trapped and right. Sharecropping was debt peonage. It was a trap, right? But now we know we have ways. We know that we, you know, that one farming is part of the answer, the solution to climate change, as I keep saying, right? We need, right? We need urban farming. We need rural farming. We need access to healthy food. We need to control it, right? Because there's so much food scarcity and food insecurity, right? So we need, right? So I think putting the political part in, right, for our survival as, as, a, as a human race, or uh, not really races, but you know what I mean, as a human population, our survival depends on us being able to control our food sources. Um, we can see, right, as I said, if we have pra doing practice learning by doing, we can see if we get young people doing school gardens and stuff, how, you know, fun and doable and achievable it is and how you can actually make a living from it. I think we, again, we just need to keep reminding people of all that can be accomplished, but also tell that story of why we weren't farmers for a while, right? Why we shied away from it, right? Why our, our grandparents or parents or aunts and uncles told us not to farm, right? I think we need to be honest about what the conditions were and what the story was. And um, for places that didn't didn't use cooperatives and didn't know how to how to make farming liberatory they said get out right but there were places throughout as i said throughout history that i was able to find that actually they were able to keep people farming when they were able to to do it in a way that was supportive where they had training and how to um how to cooperatively do it where they had training and how to do sustainable agriculture or, or organic farming and that kind of thing so i think telling those stories, reminding people of how and why we can be successful at this, and then reminding us of why it's necessary, right? Um, and, and I think getting the urban-rural connections better, because a lot of the urban groups, that's what they're trying to do, right, is start urban gardens and start urban farming. And there's some really exciting new uh, technology right Tech technologies right the hoop the hoop gardens and the the hydroponic and whatever i'm sorry again i'm not a farmer but from what i learned from talking to co-op farmers and stuff there's all kinds of exciting innovations in farming so we just need to keep talking about it keep reminding people but i think we need to also tell you know be honest about why we hadn't been farmers or why we didn't think we should be farmers um, and then I think we need more of the testimonials from the young people who have decided to be farmers because I, you know, that's what I came on this morning and I was so impressed with them. Um, and they made me feel like maybe I should get into farming in my old age. <laughs> yes. Well, I want to personally thank you, Dr. Jesse, for engaging us this afternoon because uh, we've crossed many rivers and we have many 
more rivers to cross, much work to be done. Um, but I also hold the philosophy that many hands make light work. Um, we know our cooperative effort will not be easy. We know the re-educating. Um, uh, there's a book out uh, entitled Re-Education or the Miseducation of the ne ne Negro. So we have to re-educate uh, black and brown people on the utilization of cooperatives for economic means. And I think your book does an excellent job of, of articulating that um, more from my perspective, more from a learning lessons learned. And as we um, come together as a collective, these are strategies that we can use to protect ourselves. Um, we know we all went off and got the education as our panelist, Can Candice. Uh, I commend her who's getting her PhD in, in agribusiness. Um, so we, when you know better, you do better. And I just really wanna thank you for your book, Dr. Jesse, and engaging us this afternoon. And um, I just wanna thank you. And that brings us up to our next um, individual who's going to be bringing us to a close um, with some words of encouragement because we heard a lot of information here today and there's no secret when you have a collective effort we need uh, individuals who have all different types of expertise because to be successful in agribusiness it is not just about putting a seed in the ground it is so much more and with that I want to bring our next uh, person up who is one of our board members uh, elect, uh, Mr. Reggie Kaysen. Reggie. Thanks so much. Good luck to everybody. Thank you. Oh, and I guess while we're waiting for Reggie, I did put in the chat, I don't know who saw it, but I could also recommend a book called Freedom Farmers by Monica White which also talks about how important um, black farmers and farming was to just the whole, all the freedom movements and the importance of owning land and producing food, that kind of thing. So that's another way we can keep motivating people about why it's so important. Thank you, Dr. Jesse. So while Reggie is coming on here, um, I just wanna encourage our, our listeners, uh, if you have not visited our site, uh, www. 2020, that's 2020farmerscoop.com. Please visit our website, uh, subscribe to our newsletter that initially gets you engaged. But if you're really serious and you want to be a part of the movement, I encourage you to join the cooperative. We've got to begin to br bring uh, together our regional eyes. The 2020 Farmers Co-op is a national cooperative. Uh, we have expanded beyond the Mason-Dixon line. We are not uh, relegated to a Southern portion, but we are a nationwide cooperative of black farmers across the country. And we want to engage black and brown and small scale farmers across the country to be a part of the movement. We can share ideas, information, sources, resources to collectively become more empowered uh, to our own success and more importantly, to the success of our uh, future, which, are, which is our younger generation. And so we, we want to make sure that we understand the cooperative, we, the cooperative uh, structure and the movement of it. And so our membership fee is $200 per annual. 
Um, and that $200 goes a long way in assisting you in having access to some of the things that will make you a more viable farming entity. Um, so I'm just really uh, excited about that. And so um, I'm gonna take a couple minutes while Reggie comes. I just really wanna encourage individuals to visit our website, the2020farmerscoop.com. And so we're looking for individuals of all different classes of farming uh, and skill sets. And as I mentioned, being successful in the agribusiness industry is much more than just putting a seed in the ground. Because once that seed gets in the ground and it grows, you have something called processing. Uh, we call that in inner cities manufacturing. It could be light manufacturing. Uh, that steak that you get from the grocery store goes through a process manner. And we need to bring some of these jobs, some of these opportunities back into the inner cities as well as the rural communities. Um, we need individuals um, who understand this social media technology type thing, because as Dr. Jesse mentioned, we've got to get the story out there and we've got to get the story out there in a consistent basis. And that means uh, you got to have somebody who's a lot more skillful than myself in understanding how all this technology works and how we put it together. And that's called our communication strategy. So we, we need to be able to put that message out. We have some very good things that um, are in store for uh, the 2020 Farmers Co-op, um, but we are on a trajectory of getting our story heard, meaning we want to meet with those Black legislators and representatives out there. We want to meet with our, our local Urban League and NAACP and encourage them to begin to embrace uh, what we think to be a very viable economic engine in communities and especially in dense communities of color. But what we want to do is we want you to come and grow with the 2020 Farmers Cooperative. There is no question, no doubt about what's needed and the, the, the humongous mountain that we have to climb to get to the top. So we need individuals, um, specifically if you are a farmer who is willing to uh, grow hemp collectively. We want to capture a good piece of the hemp market. Um, we have a contractual opportunity on the table right now, um, but we need 500 to 1,000 acres so that we can be taken serious with this. Uh, we'll be talking with our members, uh, our, our paid and voting members of the cooperative right after this meeting to figure out if we wanna engage in this opportunity. We think it's an excellent opportunity. Um, we need farmers who may have waterways on their, their properties, whether it's a little creek running in the back, it's a pond, or you live next to one of those things. We need farmers who are interested in diversifying that revenue stream and, and trying algae scrubbing. Uh, as Dr. Peter mentioned, we're going to be going after grants so that uh, we're not expecting the farmers to pay, but we are expecting the farmers to learn and to engage in the process. And through that learning and engage in the process, uh, hopefully it will net you some revenue. We need farmers who are in the livestock area. 
the livestock area. I don't care whether it's 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 cattle, whether it's sheep, it's goats, it's chickens, uh, it's pigs. Uh, we need farmers to to uh, join the co-op who are interested in this because we want to give them a fair and equitable price for their livestock, but not only that, we want them to stay connected to the economic stream. We want to own some of the processing facilities so that we can process our own cattle, process our own pigs, sheep, goats. Uh, we want to be able to process in a manner that we think is, um, I can't call it humane, but um, a best practice and, and, and Khalil or kosher, however you want to, to say that. We wanna make sure that these good quality products are getting into communities of color to help mitigate some of the health type issues that plague uh, black and brown communities. We need individuals who are out there growing fresh fruits and vegetables, but we need those individuals to be open to collectively growing in a manner that is agreed upon and has uh, good benefits uh, for our community. Um, is that organic? Maybe not necessarily so, but it's a good practice where we aren't using chemicals and pesticides. And we wanna figure out those best practices where we can get good crop yields from good seeds that's gonna produce a good product that we can deliver into our inner city communities. Um, one of the things that I often question during the COVID type thing, and we probably are all aware of uh, food banks. And I actually challenged uh, our executive director of the food bank here. I said, how much of your product are you actually getting from black farmers? And there was a hesitation. The hesitation was, most likely you can honestly uh, answer and say none, but she was very safe and, and what actually transpired, she just did not know. And it was probably, she never got back with me. So that answer probably uh, led me to believe that uh, it was far and few in between. But I don't care what the level is, we have to come together to provide the type of education necessary so that we can sell our, our products and things to uh, food pantries or uh, provide those products to our school systems and our penal systems and our grocery stores. And collectively, we can do that. We won't be able to do it alone unless you are uh, a large scale farmer um, generating over that $350,000 a year. Um, but we still encourage you because you may have the expertise. If you're successful as defined and you're not a small farmer, then you might have an expertise that you can share with our cooperative members. And so um, we really want to encourage you to be a part of the cooperative and help us grow, help us help you grow. And from that aspect, um, Reggie, I'm not sure if you can hear us. Can you hear us? Yes, I can. Can you hear me? Okay, I'm gonna throw that thunder back over you, but I've been kind of preaching to the choir right here. But as a young individual uh, who's entering farming, uh, is a hemp enthusiast. Uh, why don't you just tell us about the need for hemp growers and what we're attempting to do? We got about four minutes uh, to put that thunder in it, whether you want to go spoke, spoken word or otherwise. Reggie, it's on you. So, 
Yeah, so actually, I wanted to kind of start from where I was starting at the beginning, when you guys could see me and not hear me. But I, I was talking about what we learned about the, the state of black farming and why it's important, um, different technologies as far as the algae scrubbing goes and the challenges of sustainability in the food and agriculture, um, what to focus on in our soil and how we can take back our power through the cooperative. So... Now it's like, you know, what, what is your garden going to grow? This is a call to action. I mean, the FDA <clears throat> approves a lot of things in our food that, uh, that honestly, I don't want in our food, but their content is getting more confusing. The food is getting more harmful. It contributes to our mental and physical health. And so there's an obvious degradation in, in the food in America right now. So I, I personally think us as intellectuals, we should decide not to participate in this declining program. So the bottom line is we, we need better soil, we need better food, we need better practices, uh, communities to sustain, more farmers, more farms, uh, stronger communities that will uh, step up and accept the challenge to just do better. We, we need to be involved on in all levels. And when I say that, not just growing, but um, legislation as well because we don't want to be cut out of what we do by laws that pretty much overlook the black farmer or the black communities um financially um we want to be able to to grow and leave a legacy to our future to thrive off of we don't want to do all this in vain so that after we we pass away there's nothing to be left behind to you know the future our children and you know the rest of our family members we want to be able to pass this on so we need more land. We need more farmers. We need to be that competition to beat. We want to be the ones that create the new Black Wall Street and corner the market when it comes to food, agriculture, and hemp. We have the knowledge to change our futures, and it starts from the ground up. But we also need to grow our membership, too, um, because without the members, without the land, without the acreage, without the knowledge, without the ways to protect it, then we, we're pretty much doing this in vain. And in, in time, it's going to crumble. And we don't want to see that happen. We don't want to see our just go to waste. So I'd, I'd like to thank personally everybody involved, but we, we do need to find more. We, we do need to help more. We do need to share more knowledge with more people so that we can be the overcoming that our ancestors sang about. We, we have a lot of information, but faith without works is dead. And we do need to find more. And I'm outside right now. Uh, we're not outside, but I'm, I'm on a mission right now to find more ways to um, use the collective or the cooperative to bring more money in. Uh, just more profit through different buyback programs, um, uh, just making contracts with schools and, and just, just local communities. We want to get in touch with any Black person or any Black organization that owns uh, grocery stores or, you know, elementary schools, high schools, any type of education, any place where they sell or provide food. We want to get in on it just so that we can say, hey, we got something better. This is sexier. It's organic. If you see these plants grow, it's going to make your mouth water. Okay, now you want to do business with us because we have a better product than them. And I know that you've been getting it from them for a while, but now it's time to get it from us and let them see and taste the difference. And then we can go ahead and collectively to start to, to take our power back because it's going to start with the food.
that we and with that being said i'm gonna go ahead and end my time i thank everybody for your time all right all right all right thank you reggie from the mouths of the younger generation the legacy the next generation and uh all spoken words of truth and so like i said from the mouths of the younger generation and so this concludes our uh short but i hope impactful presentation of the 2020 farmers co-op if you are a member a paid member in good standing uh with the 2020 farmers co-op you received a link to our annual membership meeting um, in your email probably about 20 minutes ago. And so we have some things we have to discuss and take a vote on, but we want everybody who attended today to share the word, share the message, visit our website. And as I began the presentation, I want to conclude the presentation today because as of today, we collectively came together standing on the shoulders of W.E.B. Dubois, A. Phil Randolph, Nanny Helen Burroughs, Marcus Garvey, Fannie Lou Hamer, and Jacob Riddick. It's on these shoulders we stand, it's on these shoulders that we must move forward collectively. Thank you, be safe, and have a great weekend. Flawed individual. Thanks for keeping the lights on, Deanne. Cindy Ashman On the wake up. Just get your body to move. Won't stop till we shake the room, yeah. Just get your body to move. Why do I need to? Why do I need to? Just get your body to move Won't stop till we shake the room, yeah